This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning Best Selling Taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards, both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Welcome back to a Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am now joined by first timer of the Good Fight Baseball Prospectus. Basically, you've probably, if you are a frequent baseball Twitter person, you know who this person is. It's Justin Clue of the Good Fight and everything else I just said. Justin, good evening. How are you? I'm good. You know, I uh, one of the podcasts that I'm on, um, I actually host with the guy who uh, authored the Stephen A. Smith uh, uh, famous tweet. And, uh, if you want to introduce me, I feel like the Joe Buck tweet guy is probably one of the more familiar references to make in regards to my work. So I was telling him, I think we should just introduce ourselves as uh, Stephen A. Smith and Joe Buck tweet guys. I think that at this point, that's probably how people remember us. <laughs> Wait, is this the, Oh God, yes one? Yes. <laughs> okay. God. Love that one. Um, God, shame if people that, have that, no uh, idea. This is how niche uh, this conversation has already gotten. Um, we're just, I, I, oh, I just, oh God, yes, yes. Those at 140 words will be my literary legacy. I think that'll be that'll be it for me. <laughs> That's what I'm remembered for. <laughs> was David? Are you talking about David Roth for the Stephen A. Smith tweet? No, that was uh, the, there was two of them. There's that one. Okay. He's the crab rangoon one. I yes, think. Love and the other crab one rangoon is things of that nature. Yes, yes. The other one is uh, my friend Trevor Strunk, who also writes for Baseball Prospectus. He did uh, he did the one uh, of uh, uh, Stephen A. and Skip Bayless going back and forth, and um, and uh, Stephen A. is like, oh, you know, you know, I would never decry the Holocaust, <laughs> but oh, <yeah. laughs> but. <laughs> somehow capturing perfectly uh the uh the rhetoric of Stephen a smith solely in text form it's really unbelievable both those tweets it's incredible okay well i was not expecting to start here but i'm glad, I'm glad we did <laughs> now that we've alienated a decent number of listeners <laughs> oh let me tell you baseball podcasts like that's the interesting thing about baseball like if you go through just being in this for a couple of years now and just seeing like which podcasts hit and which ones um like just how people ingest things and what they they're into it seems like in john taylor of si and i we've talked about this a lot where it's just seems 
baseball has become so regionalized where you really you listen to your team's podcast that you go to your mlb.com braves page you go to your talkingchop.com and you don't really keep up you don't watch like a random white Sox game on thursday you don't you, i mean why would you but like you're not keeping up with even the good teams like the astros or whoever but um it is interesting that like just general baseball podcasts they're only like effectively wow which i love and the ringer mlb show like am i forgetting some big uh just that covers everything i baseball tonight which i'm not going to comment on um i miss Keith laws uh podcast but um gotta say i i'm not going to comment on the baseball tonight podcast um but i think i, I, I think d- you're absolutely right and uh, speaking of baseball tonight i think the absence of baseball tonight as a television program has has affected me in the way exactly that you're describing i feel like i got to put in a lot more legwork to be as familiar as i used to be with uh with baseball league wide and not just in the philadelphia area so yeah i definitely know what you mean i think for me personally that had a lot to do with that because uh, i totally agree with you i'm not sure it's good um that teams are just or fans are just uh inundated with their own uh just propaganda from their team's <laughs> radio station and everything else I, i'm not sure that's great but um i don't it's know not, that's just where we're know, at. I, I like i like we talk about regionalizing there's a part of me that that likes that we were talking about on uh, on another podcast about uh, our favorite uh, coolest baseball uniforms right now and i was saying how I, re- I really like the ones that reflect the region of the united states the team is playing in i I mm-hmm. like that kind of stuff. I like I like little subcultures and inside references, especially for like newer teams to see them like Wait, who build. Who does that? I'm blanking off the top of my head. Who even has like a regionalized uniform? Uh, the, the Rockies with purple and the mountains, and uh, I feel Wait, like that's what? the Mariners. What purple mountains are there? Are there purple mountains <laughs> that I missed out on? Were there dinosaurs <laughs> roaming? Like what? Mountain peaks and like purple mountains, majesty and all that crap. Come on, that's uh, that a thing. <laughs> yeah, that that's definitely uh, well, it's, it's, it's just a good also... course field. See the yeah. mountains in the background. You can see where they got the color scheme from, and I feel like the Pacific Northwest teams, like the Mariners, do that really well with like the blues and the the you know the um uh what the type of trees they have up there. Like that's kind of like the color scheme they go for, and then like the Diamondbacks, they're like yeah. burnt. Well, the Diamondbacks used uh, to do the Southwestern right thing um, with their pinstripe and purple and everything else, which they should go back to full time. I, I hate the red and I hate those grays, those smoke grays. Ugh, oh, just atrocious. Yeah. Yeah, they've had some of the most dramatic color shifts, I think, <laughs> being such a young franchise. like this. Well, they're trying they to really make everything match. You have the Coyotes, Cardinals, they're all like the same colors except for the Suns. Like, that's, yeah. that's it. It's weird. <laughs> it's very yeah. dumb. Yeah, no, I yeah. think the best example of this is Pittsburgh. Like, with the Pirates, Penguins, and Pirates. Wait, no, Steelers, Pirates, Penguins. Those yeah. three, all three are just phenomenal. I like the black just black and gold and just knowing that's that's a pittsburgh thing that's the best example of that i feel like yeah and i don't think you got to go as dramatically as they do where it's clearly black and yellow are the only color sports teams wear in pittsburgh but like if people have a decent amount of overlap team to team like if philadelphia teams embodied like the colors of the philly flag or like they just settled on some color a while ago and they all kind of shared different shades of it or whatever put their own personality or their own spin on it like that's that's what i'm talking about i mean i think that's that's very cool. But uh, to your larger, larger point, I think it's unarguable that, yeah, we definitely, I feel less familiar with the league and, and I want to put on random White Sox games and I just don't. Or when I do, I just stop you're paying just attention. By just, uh, you're <laughs> about uh, uh, Mr. Anderson and his bat flips, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> How My could you tune into player. a White Sox game? 
at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but Tim, uh, Tim Anderson's the most entertaining player. I'm, I jumped on that bandwagon not long after he became a household name. You know what's sad for guys like D. Gordon when you look at Tim Anderson just cranking out homers and it's just so easy the way the ball flies off the bat and then you see like other skinny guys like Billy Hamilton and just like the the speedy like guys who should not have the same kind of power that Anderson does but he just makes it look so effortless that you look at him like hey why aren't you doing this what's going on can we not increase this launch angle how how has he figured this out and you guys haven't What, what are we doing. Man, I used to, uh, when the Phillies were starting Cameron Rupp at catcher every game, I used to just wonder, why can't this giant bull elephant of a man just hit the baseball 500 feet? Why is he so bad at hitting? And obviously so much more goes into it. (laughs) But, like, yeah, he's just this giant hulking brute who looked like he could hit the ball out of the stadium. And he just, you know, he, he got a hold of a couple over the years. But, you know, it's obviously more to hitting than hitting it as hard as you can. But, man... Uh, yeah, that just seemed like a waste of power. The, the, I think the worst that drove me nuts is James Loney. James Loney yeah. drove me absolutely insane. And I he was like one of the early first basemen where it just like he was ahead of his time where I think now he'd be appreciated a lot more for what he does. But like um, it always drove me nuts. Just like a, a first baseman who couldn't hit for power. Just I, I was it's not like it doesn't make any sense. It's not rational, but I just grew up around just being disgusted by a first baseman that just hit singles and was batted 195 and i i just i hated it i i i I, it's weird how much i disliked james loney someone who had no effect on my life but um just seeing his numbers would just make me uh a little queasy hey there's uh, a lot of people in cincinnati who absolutely despise joey vado which is absolutely insane to me and the Phillies had Carlos Santana for a year. Do you think people around here really grasped the value of a Carlos Santana type, especially when he was also like a big guy who looked like he could hit the ball, but his, you know, his whole thing is, no, I actually just get on base a lot. and I work a lot of walks. Yeah. You think people really appreciate that component to his, uh, to his approach? Cause I can tell you, no, they did not. They did not no, like that. That's <laughs> bullshit. And that's not what uh, we're here to see. You're an entertainer, <laughs> sir. And there's nothing entertaining about a high OBP. <laughs> um, so this is, I, I don't have a, a very natural organic transition to the first thing I want to talk about. So I'm just going to have to lay this out here. So I apologize, Justin, but, uh, um, forgive you. Worst situation right now, the Washington Nas- nationals who are, I believe 10 games under 500 or the New York Mets who are like four games under 500 and they're, uh, one of their high priced outfielders fell off a horse into something. I, we still don't Do we really know, know what, what kind happened. of animal it was. I heard that I that was, that, I saw reported. a horse. Okay. I saw What else uh, would make sense? Rhino? The the epitome of this whole situation with the Mets was me seeing uh, a Mets beat writer just yelling back at people on Twitter saying, "Look guys, I don't know what kind of animal Yoenis Cespedes <laughs> fell off. All I know is it was not a horse." And you're like, "Wow, this is a baseball writer." So job. it wasn't a horse, but he fell off yeah. an animal. He did confirm that. Yeah, that is what, and I was like, what was he doing? Like riding a bull, like for a rodeo? Like well, maybe it was a big dog. Was right? Yeah, <laughs> at his ranch. I, I don't. He and has to have a tiger, honestly, right? Maybe it's a tiger. <laughs> I could see him owning a tiger. Right. Uh, yeah, not to like hunt, but just to like have. No, yeah, just I could to absolutely like have around the house. And if you had a tiger and you were suspicious, eventually the day would come where you'd be like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ride him. 
today. Yeah, he's like, I like that we're just putting the the Archer's personality on Yenis Cespedes without knowing really about him. Just... I spent $9,000 on a tiger saddle. I'm not going to let it just sit there. <laughs> but that's that's honestly why I would uh, instantly answer the question that you asked without even without even really going to the numbers. Like I'm, you know, being NL East rivals of the Phillies, I'm I'm pretty familiar with what these teams have been going through and it's a little interesting because we thought we were going to have this like four team battle for the NL East and it just hasn't been that way thus far. We're only a month and a half into the season, but yeah, um, I, to, to instantly answer the question, I would have to say the Mets are in a worse spot because at the end of the day, the Nationals, you know, Anthony Rendon's hitting the crap out of the ball. Obviously, we saw a report today saying that um, uh, he may be less inclined to sign with the Nationals than previously thought, blah, blah, blah. You know, Scott Boris is already working his connections, getting word out there about Rendon's free agency plans. Um, but the Nationals still have, like, a bunch of good players. They're playing very poorly right now, and it sucks. But they'll be the Nationals when they come out the other end of this. The Mets will still be the Mets. And I don't like to assign a whole lot of uh, otherworldly superstition to, uh, to situations like this. But at this point, it's impossible. It's impossible to argue that something else is just going on with the Mets that makes them the Mets. When we're talking about a story about one of their one of the guys that's been said to be like, all right, when they get Cespedes back, uh, that'll be one of the reasons the Mets can still turn this thing around. But then he falls off off a mystery animal on his ranch and breaks his uh, breaks his ankle and. That, among other things, uh, I mean, among regular baseball things, like their three stud starting pitchers having a combined, they have like a combined ERA close to five, I think. Um, and, and uh, you know, just the general mayhem that tends to have. Wasn't it the, you know, it was Brandon Nimmo who ate raw chicken during spring training and got ill. Like, it's just an endless pipeline of stories like this that come out of the Mets camp. And, and it's been years, years and years and years, ever since, like, I was a young baseball fan. This is just sort of clownish. Uh, behavior, uh, just stories that just come out of the New York Mets. And at this point, I think it's inescapable for them. They'll still be the Mets when this is over, and stuff like this will just keep happening. Brody Van Wagenen saying at the beginning of the season, like, come get us to the rest of the NL East is looking more and more ridiculous. Because every year, you know, I'll buy into it. I'll buy into any team being like the team that surprises people. And I was like, what if it is the Mets? What if this really is the craziest division this year? What if it's the Phillies who fall off early? I'm glad the uh, that that's not what has played out, but Man, I, I, at this point, how can you not bet against the Mets every time? Yeah, um, I just think we need to give the Wilpons a couple more years to really figure <laughs> this whole ownership thing out. Um, <laughs> I think we're being a little harsh on them. I think they need to give the younger one more power and more sway <laughs> in the organization, I think. Um, just get a dog and give him a bunch of shares in the team, see what happens, You know, shake things up. I mean, to be fair, going into the season, and this is a team that was only a couple years removed from being in the World Series, and yeah. a lot of that core is still there. Like, Peter Alonso has been great. You, The yeah. Cano stuff, whatever. I mean, Edwin Diaz, we all like that, right? I mean, Edwin just, Diaz has been can, great, yeah. You just need a couple of these guys to hit where, like, you needed Nimmo. Like, McNeil, great story. I mean, there was some weird playing situation with McNeil to start the season where you're like, what are you doing? And then there's some weird rosario stuff as well but like uh, on paper with that rotation and just the young pieces that could have hit kind of like what the braves are doing a little bit where it's like the braves are hitting on seemingly every young player right now through their pipeline 
And mm-hmm. the Mets needed that with Conforto, with Nemo, with Alonzo, with uh, just everybody. I think Jeff McNeil is like 37 years old, so he doesn't really count. But um, you could just see a scenario where it's like, yeah, I could see them winning the division. It wasn't crazy for Brody to say that, but then we just forget they're the Mets. Can you imagine there are so many New Yorkers who are Mets and Jets fans? Like the last <laughs> two weeks have just like, what? Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's let's. New Yorkers is generous. There's a lot of people in Northern New Jersey who are Mets and Jets fans. Right. Let's, let's give with that. Uh, like, has you know, anyone I, checked on Kevin James recently? What is he doing right now? <laughs> I would, I would say honestly, but probably no. No one has checked on Kevin James recently. Okay, that's um, mean. How dare you? I, uh, <laughs> was my childhood, and I love that show, and I have every season on DVD to this day. So I will have you checked on Kevin show. James recently? <laughs> I, I might have to get off this podcast. I'm going to hit up Kevin. That's what I call him. Kevin James. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I said, I, 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 when he said, come get us, like, yeah, there's a reason for that. They made moves that made their team look more appealing. Um, you did have to just remember that, like, okay, this is 36-year-old Robinson Cano. And why did they trade three prospects for Keon Braxton? You know, there were little, there were cracks uh, at the beginning. But again, in the in the preseason, in the off season, it's so easy to imagine any team as uh, as 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 um, a potential surprise. And the Mets, oh my god, the Marlins. Teams, we need to have a caveat. Well, except for the Marlins, um, yeah. There's obviously Marlins, <laughs> Orioles, yeah. But like the Mets were one of the few teams that actually made a uh, notable effort to make their team better, and that was cool to see given that that was not a common trend this winter and the moves they made you know you could make an argument that all right this is this is what they need they needed they needed some attention they needed a reason to get fans to pay attention to them and you know maybe things could have worked out a different way but then every year we just get to this point and it's like oh right but they're the Mets and that part of their fate is inescapable so I think that's just where we're at right now the Nationals you know they'll bump they'll bounce back eventually every team that Ran the table. I keep waiting for a on that. It's years. been like a year and a half. It, <laughs> I think we can move past the Dusty Baker is responsible for the Nationals. Uh, oh, figuring it out. I, I I think that's a little overstated, but it is weird because they they are another team that went out. They got Patrick Corbin. Like Juan Soto mm-hmm. had a great rookie year. He had one of the yeah. best years of any nineteen year old ever. And it's just like okay, there's still a lot of pieces. You still have Rendon. Losing Harper sucks, but like. You could have made the case this starting rotation that they were going to be okay, and then um, Anibal Sanchez and Jeremy Hellickson have been absolute dog shit. So, like, I, I don't know. I, I could like I talked myself into the Nationals as a wild card team this year. Like, I I still had the Phillies win the division before the season, but like, I, I you could see the case of like this team can figure it out, and if they struggle again, they're going to spin because of the learners. If we know anything about them, it's that they're not afraid to spend money. Rizzo's not afraid to spend money, and they would keep trying. We don't know with the Mets. We don't know what they're going to do spending-wise. I mean, we know that they're not going to spend a lot. That's but true. <laughs> they might like, sell the team to a traveling carnival. You know, that, that's the kind of... No, the Wilpons are dying with this team. If they haven't sold at this point, <laughs> there is absolutely no chance the Wilpons are ever moving on from the New York Mets. So, um, and I think... I, I don't know. I just think we need to really be patient with younger Wilpon and let him get his father's age, get into his own Ponzi scheme situation and see... <laughs> how he comes out on the other end of it because i think at that point he'll be a pretty solid owner with 40 years of experience i think that that might be it and then you can move back to flushing and then it's all great great right he he and bernie madoff's cat can like start a, a new era of meth meth ownership together <laughs> i wouldn't rule it out 
Do you think this happens if Bryce stays this year, though? If they re-sign Bryce, does do, do the Nationals have the kind of start to to their season that they're having? Right wow, now? that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I'll I'll say I'll say no. I think I think they uh, I think they avoid this kind of sluggish start because I, I think that would have been they, they were fans and, and writers were already working very hard to talk themselves out of needing Bryce Harper. Having him back, I think you know there'd have to be a lot of backtracking, but. I think people would also be excited. I think they were doing the, uh, uh, we talked a lot in the off season about how in their, in their treatment of Bryce Harper, Nationals fans were really turning into Philly fans, which is what they, uh, they were trying so hard to be above for so many years. And we, you know, we do a trick here in Philadelphia where we assume the worst about everything because then um, if, if something good happens, then the worst thing that happens is you're pleasantly surprised. And if, if something bad happens, then you get to say you were right. And I feel like that's probably what they were, the approach they had to Bryce Harper leaving. So him staying, I think, might have, might have kept some mojo in their court. Might have helped them feel you know, good about themselves, that he chose them, that everybody thought he was going to come down to the Yankees and Phillies, but he actually stayed home. And like, you know, this is where he belongs and blah, blah, blah. You would have seen so many fluff pieces come out and columns written about how, you know, this is, this is D.C. and this is his home and baseball and D.C. matters and all that stuff. I feel like that probably would have been uh, probably would have been an injection of goodwill into that uh, into that lineup that um, maybe let them skip out on some of the goofier mistakes and and bad losses they've suffered here at the beginning of the season. So yeah, I'll say I'll say if Bryce Harper stays, they have a much posi- much more positive outlook at the beginning of the season. Is there anything wrong with Juan Soto? What's going on there? <laughs> I mean. If something, on the one hand, how good he was last year made me think something was wrong with Juan Soto, that he was just, mm-hmm. maybe maybe he wasn't human. He was just so, so good and such a pain to have to play against all the time. Um, so on the other hand, yeah, you, you got to think something, something's wrong. I mean, it might be the kind of thing where, yeah, there's no like noticeable fluke or mistake he's making. It's just, you know, sometimes a guy's numbers go down, especially a young player. I mean... When you you talk about when a guy gets diagnosed with inconsistency, it's always uh, a symptom of inexperience. And when you're 19 years old, and people are already touting you as like the next big thing of this franchise, you know, yeah, Bryce Harper had to go through uh, something similar. But you know, there's this is an ebb and flow uh, of, uh, of a young player's career. So. I, I don't think anything is necessarily wrong with him, other than the fact that uh, he's adjusting to being the one of the main offensive forces on this major league franchise. And I, I again I we saw enough from him to know that something is wrong when he's only hitting two forty six with a seven seven ninety three OPS. But yeah, it's a long season and he's got plenty of real estate left. I think, you know, you certainly haven't seen the last of Juan Soto. And for now, as someone who um covers a team that plays him nineteen, twenty times a year I'm okay with him taking some time off here at the beginning. Let them uh, let them get a head start before he rears back and becomes that uh, 300 hitting teenager he was last year. Yeah, I mean, I, it seems like he has time, but um, <laughs> you know, uh, we really need those. I, I don't think Ronald Acuna helps. I think that's something to no. think about, where it's like just what he's doing and um, I that kind of stuff. It's not fair to him, but it's just he's in your division. You know what he's doing. You have Bryce Harper in that division. Like it's just, um, I don't know. It's it should be interesting, but they just they just have to start winning baseball games again. Um, hey, if you had to rank the four bullpens of uh, the teams that are trying to win games in the NL East, how would you rank them right now? Ah. Mm. Uh. 
Okay, so the Nationals have to be the worst, right? That has to that be That seems like four. a problem to getting back on track. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Um, but bullpens are so volatile, and so, I mean, I feel like as bad as, as quickly as things can go bad, suddenly you can you can look back over a month and be like, hey, you know, the bullpen was pretty okay. Um, but thus far, I think it's, it's got to be the Nationals at the worst. The Phillies were pretty shaky, um, but I feel like I don't I don't know if I'd necessarily put them in third. They're definitely not. They're definitely not number one. Uh, so I, I'd say two or three. I'm, I guess I'm leaning towards three. The Mets have Edwin Diaz, and uh, he has been good for them. So um, uh, I'll, I'll put uh, I'll put the Phillies at three, and uh, I guess meant at two because one doesn't feel right for them either and then i guess the braves are first does that feel right i, I guess i don't really know what happened the braves bullpen started off this year so bad luke jackson's figuring out sean right? got to save the other night like i don't understand <laughs> any of this i'm thinking about one of them has to be like the clear number one but there's not one right no <laughs> and it seems yeah. like one of them are gonna sign craig kimbrell right like we going into the season it seemed like the nationals were gonna do it and then they didn't do it which doesn't look great now um but the Phillies, like who knows the Braves, who knows like him just sticking it to the Braves and everybody else by signing with the Mets and just load up on bullpen arms. There you go. New York. Brody why? Why? Why hasn't it happened? Why didn't the Braves just say like, hey, Craig, welcome back. Like, come well, I think on it's home. The pick situation, right? Isn't everything just about having to give up picks to sign? Sure. Uh, but at the same time, any one of those teams is going to look at their bullpen and think, look, <laughs> the guy, the team here that signs Craig Kimbrell might just win the division or the team that makes an adjustment of some kind, you know, with Kimbrell being the most obvious one is, is going to have a huge leg up in winning this division where like these four teams are supposed to be competing for the title and they all have these glaringly bad bullpens, yet none of them are going after the elite closer who's just sort of hanging out out there. The fact that he played for one of them already just seems like why hasn't why has this not happened? At this point, it just feels like out of spite. Like I don't know what the holdup is. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't seem great. Um, I have a question. Does Mickey Callaway matter? <laughs> I feel like Mickey Callaway matters to Mickey Callaway. Uh, but and I don't mean that talking... mean. Like I'm not trying to be a dick, but we I, I, like baseball managers to me more than any other coaching situation in pro sports seems like the the least meaningful and impactful job like i i I don't know i just feel like so many gms are basically running stuff anyway where they're like oh you can do that or you can't do that they're like if they make a bad lineup change or a bad pitching change they're just going into the gm's office the next day and andrew friedman sits him down like okay so here's why you here's what you did here's what you were supposed to do and just like a, a dressing down all the time. I don't know. I just, I feel like when we go down this road, I'm like, oh yeah, the, the Yankees really miss Joe Girardi and uh, Aaron Boone's been a disaster. And like, just, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it actually really matters. So like the Mickey Callaway firing stuff, I'm like, who, what? And Riggleman, that's the guy you're replacing him with where you're like, yeah, that oh, God. like what? I don't understand any of this. Why do we do this every year with baseball managers? You know, this year especially, with so many teams really not looking super competitive, uh, you wind up with a bunch of managers whose jobs are just to be babysitters or guys like guys like Pete McKinnon in in Philly uh, who who knew that they probably weren't going to be the manager who got the next great team, but they were the manager now. So, yeah, that kind of gives you a hint of how 
impactful a team really thinks a guy's going to be when they can consider his job to just be like, um, to be there while the players are, you know, around. Uh, I, I feel like at this point and probably most seasons, there's very few managers who are there because they're like, you are, we, we like the uh, strategies you employ. We like the way you interact with the players. We like the way you run a clubhouse. We like your input on matters. We like your in-game decisions. We like how you deploy the bullpen. Um, that you are just good at being a manager. And I feel like a lot of guys get hired not because they're good at being managers, but because they had a good interview, because they know some people in the front office. I mean, I think you're right. In some cases, the manager's job is inconsequential. Um, there's not a good manager for every team. I don't think there's 30 good managers in baseball and probably not even 15 good managers in baseball. Um, they might be better based on the context of their uh, managing situation. But like, if you're talking about Terry Francona's out there, Joe Madden drives me nuts, but obviously his uh, success can't be denied. Uh, guys like Joe Girardi, who uh, probably are going to be employed again uh, in the near future. You know, yeah, it's uh, they're, they're not very common. And, um, you know, you take a chance on a guy like Mickey Callaway, who I believe is a first-time manager. Uh, he was a pitching coach that became a manager. Same with Gabe Kapler, first-time manager. Dave, Dave, Dave Martinez, I think, first-time manager. And uh, these have all worked or not worked out to different degrees. And I think a guy like Mickey Callaway, who goes into that situation, if he had had some success, it would have been like, great, this worked out. But in a case like this, where the Mets are just haunted by this inescapable force of uh, – of negativity that just destroys them and eats them alive from the inside out. I feel like Mickey Callaway has this brand of manager's job where he just exists to be fired. So he's just there so they can fire someone in dramatic fashion who everyone knows and who talks to the reporters every day to sort of send a statement that like, look, we did something. We made, we made a change without, without having to actually make a change. So to answer your question in that vein, no, he doesn't really matter, but that's why, they can fire him because he's firing him. Isn't really going to do anything to change the Mets situation. So much of the things that have happened, you think Mickey Callaway was down there at that ranch saying, I don't know about this. You I don't know if you should ride the tiger. <laughs> I feel like you're going to get hurt. No, that was, that was out of his hands. So yeah, I, I can see, I can see them making a move to get rid of him just to be able to say they did something. But at the end of the day, no, I, I don't think in this case, in this uh, swirling maelstrom of chaos that has become the Mets, that he really factors in too much. Speaking of working out, do you think Gabe Kapler works out? <laughs> I think Gabe Kapler probably works out more than he doesn't work out, to be honest. <laughs> I would like to know uh, yeah. what his daily like regimen is and like his eating habits. Do you know anything about this? What does he do? Well, I, yeah, I know he's uh, he's a deep believer in uh, local local farms and organic mm. food and all that stuff. Love those um, kind of local farm stuff. Love that. Uh, I, I know, here. I know that he uh, uh, he lives uh, in the Fishtown neighborhood of Philadelphia. I've been told, and uh, he he makes the walk from there to the stadiums. Which I don't know how familiar you are with the geography of Philadelphia, but never been to Fishtown. Fishtown is a a very north uh, is in the North Philly uh, neighborhood, and to walk there, it's also it's, uh, uh, on the eastern side, bordering um, along the Delaware river and mm. to walk from there to the Southern, like what is basically the southernmost tip of, uh, of the city, certainly the southernmost stop on the broad street line, which is where the stadiums are. 
that's a hell of a walk. I wrote, I've ridden a bike from Fishtown to the sports complex twice in my life, and I was completely gassed. I can't imagine doing it on foot. That's just like time consumption alone. So yeah, I, I do think I do think he gets his reps in. At the very least, he stays active. But I mean, you know, you get one look at the guy, you know, he's somebody who uh, who doesn't sit on the couch for very long at, at, at a time. So you're calling him a liar. Uh, that's what you're doing here is that it seems pretty inconceivable that he's making that walk every day. So we heard it here first, folks. Justin Clue has called Gabe Kapler a liar, which would not be the first time Gabe Kapler has found himself in a lying predicament. So um, if Gabe Kapler said he was going to sprint down the Broad Street line on the track, grasping the third rail in his hand, I would believe him. And frankly, he's got the body type that says he could get away with that. <laughs> Do you think Mikhail Franco could <laughs> run, run down the run down the uh, yeah, subway track? Seems a little complicated. I'm going to say I'm going to say no on that one. <laughs> Mikhail Franco uh, would look fun doing that, though, right? Like he seems like someone you would like to watch sprint down different parts of Philadelphia. I miss Shane Victorino a little bit. Oh, I miss Shane very much. I feel like if he's he's the kind of guy you meet on the subway platform who's like, hey, if you pay me uh, twenty bucks, I'll jump down onto the tracks and like right. grab like that, he's just, grab that yeah. dollar bill. It's a fun hang. I feel like he's in the top five of baseball hangs where I'm like, Oh yeah, let's, what, what's he up to? Um, you know, oh, he's yeah. not in the top five, like probably Mike Trout. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shane, Shane just seems like exhausting. Like I would, it would be after a few hours and I'd be like, I got to go home. And he'd be like, what are you talking about? We're like going to a buffet. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, this is a good transition into, uh, is the Braves offense sustainable? <laughs> no offense is sustainable. Nothing about baseball is sustainable. Mm-hmm. We talk. This becomes the uh, the conversation. Is this your every Phillies time. fan coming out of you, where you're like, "No, the Braves' yes. offense is actually bullshit." No, death comes for us all. You'd be amazed how many sports conversations I've had that end uh, with that exact sentiment. Um, no, uh, if anybody could sustain this level of production, it would be the freaking Braves. Who I'm so glad. Philly swept in the opening series and haven't had to deal with too much since then. Haven't really had to think about too much since then because they are, they are a fearsome team and an annoying team, frankly, um, because of how good they are. And because like you said, they hit on every young player that feels like that have come, that has come out of that system. And they reacquired Brian McCann, who is just so, so painfully uh, unlikable. Um, I, I feel like, yeah, if anybody could sustain that level, it would be them just because it, it, it's annoying. And Freddie Freeman is amazing. And Ronald Acuna is awesome. And even uh, Ozzy Albies hasn't looked the same this year, but uh, he's, he's also just a cool, fun young player. So, no, I don't think it's sustainable, though, because frankly, like, like just nothing is. We've seen so many uh, stretches of success, especially just even just from teams in this division that have, uh, at the end of the day, tanked. And, you know, well, the day will come when one of them will re- will realize that uh, you know he's like oh for his last ten, and then a couple more of them will be oh for the last fifteen or two for their last seventeen, and suddenly you're just like oh the Braves aren't hitting right now. It's a long season. You can't you can't really rely on any one part of your team to last for 162 games. And I do think though that um, this is going to be a Phillies Braves battle to the end. And man. I feel like they're going to be, since they haven't played the Braves too much at the start of the season, playing them more later in the season is going to be much more dramatic uh, for that reason, that these are going to be two hopefully potent offenses. Um, 
that both are capable of uh, disappearing for for stretches of time. So, yeah, no, I don't I don't think it's uh, fully sustainable just because of the nature of baseball. But man, if any team could do it, these uh, these horrifying Braves could. Yeah, I. I it depends. Like the Freed and Soroka have just been so damn good Fulton Nevich still not figuring it out and almost feigning I don't know if you saw this story he doesn't eat on game days or like the oh night my before. god and it was 90 degrees in his start on Sunday and he just that's why he pulled himself because like he hit in the bottom I forgot what inning it was like the sixth or seventh and then um they didn't pinch it for him and then he comes he doesn't come out and they're like why did Snicker not just pinch it for um because Snicker is a bad manager but so you just assume yeah. he made the wrong decision there but like it was more he just told him, hey, man, I'm feeling kind of dizzy. I need to I, – I can't go back out there. And it's because he doesn't eat on game days. It, it's an interesting story, but uh, not great. And um, a lot of this – Let, me ask, let just, me ask you a question, actually. Mm-hmm. Now you, you brought – you said Brian Snicker, not a good manager. Um, we've already talked about Mickey Callaway, Dave Martinez. I think his reputation speaks for himself. In your mind, who's the best manager in the NL East? Dave Kapler. Uh, it has to be by default. I kind of thought you right. might throw a Don Mattingly out there. Just to, uh, <laughs> I mean, just, he deserves like me. some sort of like. Uh, can you imagine writing the lineup card for this Marlins offense? Where you're like, I imagine he just turns into the umpire. We're fucked every game. <laughs> yeah, it's like one of his own baseball cards. He's like, they yeah, me. <laughs> I was pretty good. Remember those days? Anyway, um, let's get ready for an L. Yeah, just a. <laughs> big picture of Derek Jeter and it just has like a caption corporate savings and <laughs> God, give this to your kids they'll love it <laughs> <laughs> I don't know um yeah no anyone who starts off another season with Ender and Ciarte in the leadoff spot and uh Ronald Acuna in the four spot um not great <laughs> not good at your job where it's like it just seems like Acuna likes batting leadoff. Oh, did it seem like that when he raked last year batting leadoff? Oh, who would have guessed <laughs> that giving Ronald Acuna more at-bats every game through a long season would be more beneficial for the Braves than uh, the alternative and having a, a just a career just bad hitter at the leadoff spot. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that, was, that was great. Such a dumb, that was the dumbest thing. And I feel bad for Enciarte because he does seem like a good dude. And now he's like just kind of screwed because Austin Riley is just mashing everything. And he doesn't really have a place when he comes back from injury. But um, I don't know. I, that just, I, I'm just so glad the Ender Enciarte leadoff experiment is over. And also, I feel kind of vindicated it about the Dansby Swanson stuff because he had this great start the season. People are like, oh, see, because I've said from the get-go, he's not a core player. Like, he's just, if he was not drafted number one overall a couple years ago, you would not view, especially what he did in 2018, where he had one of the worst uh, awaited on-base averages in uh, baseball at 271. Bottom 6% in the league. He had a 238, 304, 395 slash. Like, he was atrocious. Like, he has great defense and all that kind of stuff, but he's... I, I don't trust his hitting, and um, in today's league, like you can find a lot of good shortstops who can who can defend. Like they're they're everywhere. You can find those guys, but um, you need hitters there, and you need if you're going to be a core piece, you have to be able to hit. And I I just haven't trusted Dancy Swanson. I'm just like if he was not drafted in that position, I don't think you would see him the same way. And he's fallen off again. Like he's down to yeah, his WRC plus is 94. 
and last year was 80 and you go through and you're like uh he's kind of quietly drifting and the people were like oh he's a star blah blah blah, because he was clutch he had some good hits some his power was up like there was a lot of just like oh he might be okay his k rates down a little bit no dancy swanson's still a below average hitter like that's just he's not a core piece i do think that the clutch gene is real i don't think it's as common as it is applied to guys i think it's actually very rare uh, and just because a guy comes through a couple of times with the game on the line doesn't necessarily mean that he is, in general, a clutch player. So to assign a guy's value to that is always a roll of the dice. But some guys, you know, they present themselves one way, but it turns out they're more of a role player. And if he's a more defensive, you know, contributor, then uh, people just have to wrap their heads around that. I mean, I brought up Carlos Santana before. And, uh, yeah, the Phillies, I, I don't necessarily really disagree with their acquisition of him. Um at the time, I thought like, okay, this is a solid move. This is a front office that wants to focus on getting on base because the Phillies weren't doing that for a while. Then they had a season with Carlos Santana where all they did was get on base. Like you said, team needs hitters. Team didn't really have hitters in 2018. They didn't have a single 300 hitter uh, for the entire season. And that's what they needed. They left the bases loaded all the time because they didn't have a guy who could come up and consistently knock an extra base hit with, uh, with runners on. So, yeah, you're right. The team team needs hitters. And uh, Dansby Swanson might be able to contribute in some ways, and that's great. But if he can't, uh, if he can't make it work, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a hitter on a team that needs to score runs, then, yeah, you got you to gotta start looking elsewhere. He's uh, – this fall, like, it, it's just good that the, the Braves offense is just – raking right now because it takes a lot of the the just the the pressure off dancy swanson and like kind of the the limelight because if this offense was struggling this team was still kind of in the rut they were in a couple weeks ago and he was dipping like this i think there'd be more conversation about dancy swanson but we'll get there when the contract comes up and people are like oh i'd pay him I'm like okay um <laughs> you're fucking crazy but whatever um i yeah i don't know enough brace um the last thing we'll get out of here this is a two-parter um a team that uh, these two teams are forever linked based on their 2000, uh, was it 2009 World Series matchup? The Phillies and the Yankees, which um, did not go your way, as I recall. No, it did not. Um, no. no. Um, Ruben Amaro did not die for this. Um, but I have a Phillies question and a Yankees question. Um, what are you more worried about? Bryce Harper's full season trajectory? Uh, with the Phillies or the Phillies rotation. And then on the flip side with the Yankees, um, why are the Yankees good again and back on top of the AL East? Uh, okay, we'll start with the Phillies question. I'm way more worried about starting pitching than, than one offensive contributor who has proven himself to be an elite hitter at the major league level prior to this. Um, Are we sure he's better than Nick Markakis in uh, 2019? <laughs> because that was a Braves thing going around that I almost threw my laptop out the window because Braves fans were like, see, you don't pay Bryce Harper when you can get that kind of value out of Nick Markakis, who's having a better war year to start the we season. We figured it out. We, the Braves fans, now to never go to Cobb County. <laughs> well, you should yeah. go to Cobb County. Cobb County sucks. But anyway. <laughs> no, I, I'm way more worried about the starting rotation, unfortunately. The team, uh, you know, they made an effort to get Patrick Corbin. Um, I mean, I don't know how big of an effort. I know they put his face wearing a Phillies hat on the Jumbotron. Um, that might have been just that about it. a lot of effort to me. Yeah. Um, but, no, they, they didn't really make any moves to improve their pitching staff. I thought 
I thought uh, Dallas Keuchel had a pretty good chance of being signed by the Phillies, but nobody, uh, they didn't really budge on that. They assumed, you know, Aaron Nola at the top of the rotation and Jake Arrieta at number two. Um, the rest of these guys would figure something out and they'd have a strong enough rotation and a powerful enough offense to overcome it. Uh, but here we are, and Aaron Nola has not looked good all year. Jake Arrieta, who looks pretty much as shaky as he did last year, looks even worse without Aaron Nola in front of him. Zach Eflin has managed to probably figure it out to the point of becoming the most reliable starter in the rotation. Nick Pavetta lost his job. Vince Velasquez lost his job. Now I got Cole Irvin up, and he's looked promising. But there's not a lot of stability, and there's certainly not a stopper in the Phillies rotation. And we're in mid-May. So that's an area that I think is going to have to be um, um, addressed moving forward if this team you know, that says it's in win-now mode really wants to win now. Bryce Harper, he's already hitting again, just from the Rockies series alone. He had a crappy series with the Brewers, and then Paul was, had fallen off and was striking out more than uh, I think at any time in his career. But, you know, this, these things happen, especially with uh, a guy who's as intense as Harper, a guy for whom the pendulum can swing one way or the other just as far. Um, yeah, it, you know, it, and he understands. He understands he's going to get booed, which is uh, – I'm just glad he, he gets it, that he's just like, people are booing because they give a crap. And that's that's exactly what's going on. So, yeah, I'm not worried about Bryce Harper. He understands Philadelphia. He understands what he has to do, and he's already doing it again. The rotation, not I'm, I'm not as sold on. Um, as far as the Yankees, they're, uh, they're good again because they're uh, Wait, getting... Wait, quick thing um, about the Phillies rotation. Would you like a... Uh, let me check my notes here. Yes, a Julio Tehran or a Sean Newcomb? <laughs> Sir, I asked you to stop calling my house at this hour, please. <laughs> Sir, this is an my, uh, <laughs> my children are trying to sleep. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, but it's, it really sucks that we got to talk about how good the the Yankees uh, have looked again. Um, and I mean, I think it's it's the it's the easiest answer is that uh, now they 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 haven't stopped, but they don't just get contributions from like the the scrappy underdogs who you wouldn't expect it from, like your your Clint Frazier's or your uh, Gio Urshela's, or uh, Luke Voigt's, now you're, uh, or even Gary Sanchez's. Like now they had uh, they had a night not too long ago. It was Glaber Torres, Aaron Hicks, Brett Gardner came through for them. And, you know, you assume, you hear rumors that uh, their big guns are going to be back. Maybe not Stanton. I haven't heard as much about him. But Judge, everyone's like, oh, yeah, he's, he's uh, in place since April 20th, but uh, he's got a bad back in his hands. Aaron Boone's like, oh, yeah, I, I think I passed Aaron Judge in the hallway the other day. And, his arms were still attached to his body, so that's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I think uh, it really sucks when a team like the Yankees gets to gets to have some of that that underdog magic because they're the least underdog sports franchise in the country, other than the Patriots. So that they got contribute contributions from guys who weren't necessarily uh, strong contributors really sucks because it got to cover them while they got uh, hit with the injury bug. And now if they're if if they're a veteran or good players are going to start contributing too, then that does make them pretty dangerous. And uh, nobody nobody wants to see a good Yankees team outside of New York. Nobody wants to see that. <laughs> well, I think, it does um, get... I, I think make... the commissioner likes to see a good New York Oh, the commissioner team. certainly does. It I makes me Mr. a Manfred little nostalgic. It's a, a fan. I grew up in the era of the Yankees just going to or usually winning the World Series every year. So... Uh, it does make me feel a little young again, but not in a way that is welcome or fun. <laughs> I have a question. 
How old do you think Cameron Mabin is? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, 36? I would guess something like that. No, he's 32. Nope. Wow. Okay. How is that possible? Wow. He's been on every team in the league at this <laughs> point. He hasn't been say, a star, but, like even a good baseball player in like seven years. I was going to say, wasn't he on the Padres for like 11 years? And I thought we were in like the twilight of his career at this point. He had a fun season like four years ago. And I was like, oh, it's a good send off for Cameron Mabin. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, I would never have... Uh... Oh, at least he's in his 30s. I thought you were going to be like, oh, yeah, he's 27. <laughs> no, I mean, 32 is still just fucking bonkers to me. I, I don't wow. know. And also, he has a, let's see what it, yeah, he has a 116 WRC plus for the Yankees this year. It's just like they get these kind of just ridiculous years. Like, DJ LeMahieu has been okay for them. Like, this just, it, it all sucks. Whatever. DJ um, yeah, he's been more than okay for them. Like, that's what I'm talking about. This, 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 this shit's unfair when you're, uh, when you're on the Yankees and, and DJ LeMahieu is hitting what, like three nineteen for you? Uh, the team that uh, I just think it's going to come burned. down. His BABIP is three fifty right now. <laughs> Thank God. So you're you're the team that spurned uh, Manny Machado, and we're like, no, we're good with like a weird like Kulawitzki. Uh, Hold on, he's had. Yeah, uh, let me check my notes here. Thirteen plate appearances this week how, or this year. How many has uh, Manny Machado had? <laughs> I off the top of my head, I don't know. Can you confirm it's more than 13? Because I can't I without guess, looking at my notes. I would certainly guess it was higher than 13. I, would, yeah. I guess, but <laughs> I don't know. I think we just, I think it's a wash. Both teams won. Well, there's just no way to prove it. Yeah, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a classic Nick Markakis or Bryce Harper scenario. Like, who, <laughs> if who we ignore want? the numbers, we get the answer we want. <laughs> That's a good way of wrapping up this podcast. Um, <laughs> Justin, this was this was a blast. Um, we can read you at thegoodfight.com. Is there anything we need to check out from you this week? Yes. Uh, today, actually, uh, I published something on Baseball Perspectives. It was the anniversary of the day in, the, in 2000 when six grand slams were all hit at the same time. And uh, I wrote a story. It was you know, not too uh, uh, um, insightful, but it was, it's a fun story about that day and just about how um, baseball doesn't, you know, baseball wants to have these distinct moments like that that seem like they, they're never going to happen again, but they're also just inevitable because baseball goes on forever. So, yeah, that was, that was a really fun story. And we've got a new episode of The Dirty Inning, a podcast where we talk about the dumbest, funniest, or most forgotten innings in Phillies history and zero in on some of the most disastrous games the Phillies have lost. And that, that was a lot of fun, too. We talked about a game from 2005 where Ryan Matt sent a meltdown. So that's what's going on this week. There you go. Is that, is that with John Stolness? That one's with Trevor. Trevor Strong. Okay, no John. John's been on the podcast from the pod. Um, okay, well, we'll check all that out. Justin, thank you so much. And uh, we'll have to do this again soon. This was fun. Kyle, thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast, and I'm now joined by veteran journalist Elliot Allman of the Mercury News. Elliot, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm good in rainy California. How are you doing, Chase? I'm good. It's raining, so you must be in Northern California, by my estimation. Yeah, we're in the Bay Area. We're I'm I'm actually in I'm actually in Facebookville. I'm um, talking to you right from the uh, not not from Facebook. Thank God, but in the same city where they're located. 
Okay. Um, are do you watch Silicon Valley? How much of like do people just assume because Silicon Valley was this huge show and you you're near that area that just like oh you must love Silicon Valley? All right. So we just have to you know I've got to go like public here and acknowledge what a nerd I am. So I've never seen Silicon Valley. I'm <sighs> probably I know I'm I'm just awful with some of the pop cultural stuff, but I but I've seen with my own eyes, Silicon Valley go, you know, from boom to bust to boom. Um, it's, uh, it's a weird, it's a weird place. At least to me, it, it's, a, it, it's strange. You know, I, like I said, Facebook is here and then all the big venture capitalists are in this, in this, uh, little village where I live. I live between San Francisco and San Jose. Um, and, uh, how far apart yeah. are they? For someone like I'm, me who has never been to that area, how far apart is it? Oh, uh, so San Jose is um, fi- about 50 miles south of San Francisco. And okay. before before Silicon Valley, it was um, the Valley of Heart's Delight. It was, you know, prunes and plums and apricots and it was fruit orchards. And it was just beautiful agriculture. And people in San Francisco always looked, had their noses down on San Jose because it's kind of the hicks, if you will, from the, uh, from the farmland. Um, and now, you know, now it's just all, it's whatever, Netflix and Google and, and Apple and, and the, the, rest of the, the rest of the crap that goes on in this world today. So do a lot of San Francisco people and Oakland people make the trip to San Jose for sharks and earthquakes games, or is it more of just the people that live in San Jose, um, stay in San Jose? Is that, uh, how does that work? Yeah, that's a, that's a a perceptive question, um, because you're talking about the sports teams now. And, um, let's just start with conversely San Jose, which is the 10th largest city in the United States. It's got about a million population always has been um, big Bay Area sports fans and feels like it's a part of the Bay Area. So you mostly they like Giants and 49ers, but there's a whole big segment who love the Raiders and the A's, and everybody loves the Warriors now, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and San Jose really just went crazy with the Sharks. I just happened to check the score, and it doesn't look good. <laughs> looks well, like their the whole team's out. <laughs> yeah, it looks like the season's over. But But now to answer your question chase um there is some snobbiness um so especially for the quakes it's really difficult to attract a san francisco um oakland berkeley kind of crowd uh and the sharks though i mean the people who love soccer and the people who love ice hockey you know the the major pro teams are in san jose so they don't really have a choice but san and don't forget the 49ers play um, in Santa Clara, which is um, on the border of San Jose. So um, frankly, um, a lot of San Francisco fans who are, who are on the North side of the golden gate bridge and Marin, et cetera, you know, they have to make the trek all the way down. So they're not particularly happy about that, but, and, and, and it goes to the cultural thing that you're talking about. There's a super snobbiness, particularly in San Francisco, you know, they're just a little bit better than the rest of us. Yeah, I could see that. So is it one of those kind of deals when you go to, um, when you go to both games, like let's say you go, cause you're a veteran sports journalist, like it, when you've been to 
like a Giants game um, or a 49ers game now that they're at Levi Stadium, which is like now that's a little bit different because you're playing at Candlestick forever and now you're in just this weird situation <laughs> pushed away from everything. It's not really San Francisco, right? So that's just a kind of a different kind of deal altogether. But um, when it, which is more fun, going to a San Jose Sharks and Earthquakes game or going to a game actually in Oakland or San Francisco? Well, um, look, Sharks games are crazy. Um, and, and as you've probably seen on TV, if you watch any of these with the playoffs, I mean, the fans, it's, it's really the, it's the, the San Jose team. So, um, and it's right downtown. It has good atmosphere. People love it. And you've already got 1 million in that city. And then you have 2.5 million in the county or more right there. So you have a great built-in audience. The Quakes um, can be like that. And I know we're going to get into talking about the Quakes. Um, They have been so bad. They're one of the perennial losers in Major League Soccer. And, um, you know, I don't know how far we want to start talking about Saturday and what Chris Wondolowski did. But I'm telling you, there might have been only 9,000 people there in the 18,000-seat stadium. And by the way, that stadium, there's not a bad seat. The experience is perfect. Um, it's all set up for the fans, but the team has just been so bad. People have, I don't know, kind of given up. Um, going to uh, going to the uh, Oracle Ballpark for the Giants is one of the best <laughs> baseball experiences you can have. It's right on the water. You probably heard about this already. Um, you've got views of the skyline, um, and it's, it's just awesome. Um, so, uh, though the only place that really is a problem is, and you, you don't even live here and you just pointed it out. So the 49ers play, um, in a parking lot of an amusement park and (laughs) they do sort of God. And, and, um, and they have, and, and they, and they put the stadium up the architecture. They didn't study the weather pattern. And they they positioned it horribly, so that we our summer um, is really happens in um, September. You know, with new weather weather patterns because of global changes. Uh, who knows exactly or climate changes? Excuse me. Mm. But um, but you you can't you on on the east side of the stadium. It'll look empty in October when it's when it's. 85 degrees out in October or 90 degrees and, and the sun is beating down on that side of the stadium where it turns it into 105, 110, whatever. So everybody has to seek shade and they're all in, in, you know, they're all where the concession stands are standing up watching the game because it's too hot to sit there. I sat there once with Colin Kaepernick's parents because they were stuck on that side. Oh my God. They were just like, you know, it's just, it's crazy. It's it's not a fun experience. You're just sweating the whole time. So, um, hold on. You just dropped a little nugget that you sat next to Colin Kaepernick's parents at a 49ers game. Yeah. That's amazing. Right. How did it go? Well, what, what did y'all talk about? Did y'all actually talk for a while? Yeah, I know. I've been to their house. Oh my God. Okay. Um, yeah. They, um, yeah, they were glad. They were glad to see me. Um, you know, they're they're really good and careful about what they would say about their son and 
and all that. But we talk, we talk football and we talk about some of, you know, we usually end up talking about some of the great stuff Colin did in the past or something. And, but we're talking about, you know, the dad, the mom and dad, they know the game better than I do. So they're talking about this or that. And, and then, you know, they'll always give me some little anecdotes about how the family's doing and particularly how Colin's doing. And I mean, that was when he was still with the 49ers. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know. As a reporter, it's our job to try to um, get to know people as best we can. I, I just love that you just casually were just like, yeah, I know, sitting with Colin Kaepernick's parents at the 49ers game with the sun beating down on us. We were both all uncomfortable, and unfortunately, we were watching this bad 49ers team and everything else. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I, I don't know how long they'll be at Levi Stadium, but it seems very uh, unlikely that Jed York would make a short-sighted move and uh, handling a, any kind of 49ers type of deal. But you mentioned Wando, who became... Uh, the all-time leading scorer broke Landon Donovan's MLS record. Um, is he the greatest MLS player of all time? Um, absolutely not. And <laughs> I, I have, I've been with Chris. Uh, I've been with Chris since 2009, since he's um, uh, been with the Earthquakes, and um, you know, I know his whole family, uh, and. Uh, he would be the first to laugh if, if I said that and say, right on, Elliot, you're saying the right thing. Landon Donovan um, may no longer be the all-time leading scorer, but he's he's the greatest, at least American homegrown um, soccer player in MLS um, and arguably um, in international play, too. Uh, there's... Uh, you know, Chris, the story with Chris is just so crazy and magical and and um, somebody will write, you know, it's almost worth a movie, you know, the fact that he's done this. But um, he he's one of the most amazing and inspirational players in Major League Soccer history, but he, he's not the, he's not the most talented or the best. So you said the stadium was basically half full for for this game. What why do you think it is that this the the attendance just hasn't hit with the the MLS boom? Like Atlanta United, like it's packed house like where I'm at, it's it, it it's just wild to me that um certain stadiums are just so big and um certain cities it just hasn't um it hasn't just been a big thing. I mean, they've been around since 1996. So now it seems like it's actually kind of a negative. You're, you've been around for a long time. You don't get that bump of just that excitement bump that all these other teams are getting. Right. So a couple of things, a couple of things uh, here. Let's talk specifically about this game um, on it's Saturday afternoon game against Chicago fire. That's not going to uh, inspire a lot of people. Um, I mean, I wasn't even going to go. And, and the only reason I went, and this is part of the, re- the reason people didn't go, was because uh, we have, we're having a storm. I mean, it's, it's like winter returned. We'll talk about climate change. I mean, we're, we're, it's Memorial Weekend. Yes, it should be windy and maybe cold that, with that, but we're, it's like pouring down rain. So I normally go in the Redwoods and do some kind of monster wilderness hike. And I didn't okay. want to do a Yeah, so I just didn't want to do a, a, a mud lug fest day you know it's just going to be slipping and sliding and on my butt the whole day so um i decided i just what the heck i'll just go to the game you know on my day off and then um 
you know, the paper was just my, the sports editor was just like, Oh my God, thank you so much for being there. Cause we didn't have a staffer there. So, um, and, um, you know, I, again, I've been with Wanda the whole time. So I was the right, you know, I, I wanted to write that story and it was, it was amazing. Now, because of the rain, people didn't go on a Saturday afternoon. They, and they're so frustrated with the team. Wanda wasn't supposed to start. Danny Houston got injured in practice on Friday. Um, that's the only reason Wando was starting. So there was no indication that he was actually going to even get enough playing time to tie uh, Landon Donovan, much less play 90 minutes and score four goals. Um, so that was what happened Saturday. And it was just uh, such a shame because you should have had 18,000 people to see one of the greatest moments, sports moments in Bay Area history. Um, clearly, one, I mean, certainly one of the few greatest soccer moments, but you think of Barry Bonds and the home runs. Um, and he and congratulated that, him, right? Didn't he give him a shout out or something? Yeah, a lot of people did. Yeah, and it's, it's so typical of Chris because, so Chris was just saying to us, he's like, like, I don't even understand this. Like, Landon Donovan, like he knows me, you know, and you have to remember Chris grew up in the East Bay and was a Quake fan back then. So he, they would go to games and Landon was a superstar, even at 22, whatever. So, you know, these, him and his brothers would idolize Landon Donovan. And now he's getting texts from Landon, you know, Hey, congratulations on breaking my record. And Chris is just like, I don't, I, you know, I don't get my life. <laughs> this is incredible. But, to the bigger question, Chase, about the earthquakes. So they built this um, privately funded stadium and they did it right. Um, kudos to the owners and for doing so it was that. All privately funded. Yeah, hundred million. Yeah, there's you know there's always there's always um, public land involved and maybe breaks on some things, but they built it on a place that was just a a, a weed covered piece of dirt that had a lot of environmental issues it used to be a um, ammunition site so there was a lot of environmental eir issues that that raised the um, increased the cost of, of constructing it there but they did a good thing they developed an area across from the airport that was just um a, you know a, a crappy lot with <laughs> dilapidated lot so um, and the stadium is really well done, as I keep mentioning. So for uh, the first three years or two and a half years, whatever, they, it, you'd get this great crowd, 18,000, and, and it was just rocking, you know. People really were, had come alive. But the, the on-the-field product was going in the wrong direction and, um, and then seemed to really, really go in the last couple of years in the wrong direction. Right now, it's hard to tell with the new coach, but they're they're having a little bit of a renaissance, a little bump at this moment. But it's a long season, so who knows? Um, and uh, people are just tired of it. You know, they're tired. They're, they're looking at Atlanta, as you mentioned, or Seattle coming in, you know, spending more on players, bringing in better players. Um, it's it, 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 the same owner, John Fisher, um, He's a heir with the Gap, you know, a clothing company. Um, he owns the Athletic, and, uh, and 
if you're a baseball for their spending and uh, yeah, yeah. being so a, you, a juggernaut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you get it. So yeah, so people that follow baseball know that that the Oakland Athletics are um, they they they're sort of a shoestring the way they do their operations, and it's the same owner. So it's the same deal with the Quakes, and it always has been. And um, you know, there's some people, some kids, some high school kids in Marin set up shop recently outside the stadium and, and um, had scarves and a campaign to get rid of the owner, get rid of John Fisher. Um, Cause they feel that that's where the problem is. Um, and this is a guy that bought a, a, a team in Italy, in fact, and that I think it irks, it irks the earthquake fans more that wait, he's spending money to buy a team in Italy instead of putting money into us. Um, so there's been a lot of frustration, but you know what? Losing, losing does that. And if you start winning, um, everything changes as, as you well know already. Um, it should be a good soccer area. Uh, it's, um, it's, you just got to have a team that's at least decent. And it, it should help that, uh, they have the best looking manager, I think in soccer, right? Mateus Almeida looks good looking dude right yeah i i I try not to um i mean i think there was a time because i'm old enough where um male sports writers often wrote about female athletes um unfortunately you know talking about the way they looked as much as the way they they might have performed so um i've had some wonderful mentors in, in women over the years really helping um realize that's not what you should do and you shouldn't do it for men either. But, um, I mean, it's a joke because of his hair and he's called, you know, Pelado and, um, cause he has this, you know, gorgeous quote unquote hair that everybody uh, would love to have. And, and, um, yeah, uh, he's Argentine. And if you've, I have lived and spent a lot of time in Argentina and, um, I mean, every, uh, let me just tell you a story about Argentina. So the first time I was there, I was in Buenos Aires, and the, a yeah, because you went covered a lot of Olympics, right? Eleven, I want to say. Uh, no, yeah, I guess that's old. Yeah, so I've covered, I've covered twelve, but I mean, I've been involved. You know, I I didn't go up to Rio, but I covered it. You know, I had to gotcha. because we only sent yeah. And then I've been writing about the Olympics since 1980, so it's been um, a lot of Olympics. But yeah, I've been on the ground in twelve Olympics. Um, but yeah, so back to back to Buenos Aires. It was a, it was um, summer. It was February, uh, late February, and um, a bus stopped and it had a billboard with a model on it. You know how, whatever advertising something. And I looked at that model. I and I looked at the billboard or the pl- the poster, and I just said to the model, "Honey, you wouldn't make it in this town." So, man, that's that's uh. It, they're, the Argentines are a cross between Spanish and, um, and uh, Italian. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, there was a lot of Italian immigrants, and, and they just have that Italian-Spanish mix. So, that's, you know, they're, yeah, they're really beautiful people. There you go. Um, last thing, and then we got to wrap up here. Um, if you had to make the case for the San Jose Quakes future, is there any young guys that they can get attached to? Is the the pipeline looking good? Is there what what would you sell 
um, fans who the eight thousand who are attending, and uh, what would you sell the other eight thousand that could be attending <laughs> Quakes games in the future? Um, what about this team and where they're going? And any particular young guy that they should uh, pay attention to right now? Well, if we have to go quickly, it's tough because they um, they're stockpiling young guys. This is this is their strategy that they. Um, when the new general manager came in from Italy, um, he wanted to emulate what you see in Europe. And that was, as much as the senior team, he was worried about the, um, the youth um, organization. And they have stockpiled so many. I mean, Gilbert uh, Fuentes is now on the under-17 national team. He's playing in that tournament, CONCACOF tournament. Um, but, I mean, Tommy Thompson... He's their first homegrown player. He's still only 22, and he's coming into his own. They've moved him to outside um, uh, right, uh, right half, you know, right fullback. And he, this was a, a an attacking player, and he is looking so good. Nick Lima is the second homegrown player, and you are you must know Nick's on the on the U.S. team and mm-hmm. uh, make, making waves. Um, these are just, uh, and Jason Jackson, excuse me, Jackson Yule is another one of the guys who's, um, starting, um, and he's in his early twenties. Um, and then they have all these teenagers. Um, we've briefly seen the rookie, um, Thad, who they, uh, drafted, um, you know, the, one of the top, I think number two draft in the, um, recent, uh, um, super draft. Um, and he has looked. Um, like the real deal. And then they have, they have these teenagers. Um, they have a guy who's um, in, in uh, I'm going to be writing about him at some point. I hope I'm trying to finish the story, but um, he's in Reno and there's some other issues with him, but it's not, has nothing to do with soccer. Um, his name is uh, Sergio Rivas. He played at Seattle U. Um, he's a midfielder with some size, but all that speed and everything. And um, there are just, as I told you, Chase, I can go on and on and on with um, the kind of kids they have. They, uh, they, they signed three kids at 15. uh, Two of them are 16 now. Which is um, the common model in Europe and all over the globe with soccer is that you, you identify superstars at an extremely young age and you get them in your academy, your program, and you develop them over the course of several years. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what they're doing. And I, I think it's going in the right direction. The problem is um, fans are impatient. So the senior team, I mean, if this senior team can get into the playoffs, it's going to buy them. It's going to buy everybody some time to really get developed these younger players. And, and it could be, it could be a really good thing. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's like old school baseball when you followed the farm teams and, um, and then you followed those guys all the way up into the majors. And so there's a lot in that respect. I mean, it's not my job to sell tickets for the earthquakes, but um, you know, I know everybody and you don't want to see anybody struggle or fail. Right. I mean, unless they're just bad people, but none of these people are. So it'd be nice to see them do well. I guess that's a good place to, to leave it. 
Yeah. Um, oh. Patience, just like the A's. So they're staying on brand, this ownership group. Um, Elliot, thank you so much for making the time. This is great. Um, is there anything that we need to check out uh, within Mercury News that you're writing about? I know you just, you're just you working on one story you just talked about, but is there anything um, we need to check out from you this week specifically? Um, no, I'm... Uh... I have an interesting job that just has happened in in this in May. So I don't. I'm not a sports. I am a sports writer, but I'm not. I don't work for the sports department. I work for the the newsroom. Metro is what it's called. And my job, I mean, is to write about sports issues, which I have been doing. Um, but uh, but I don't really. I'm not really supposed to be covering the games or anything per se. Um, I'm going to have something on the Women's World Cup. Um, it's for us in the Bay Area. It's an interesting um, local angle to uh, to what's going on there. Um, and I'm hoping to have a, a pretty soon an interesting story about the great um, free solo rock climber Alec Conhold. You may have seen the movie. You know he won the Oscar um, for that documentary. I have not. Um, Okay, yeah, you'd have to really be in. We're we're weird out here in the West, you know. We I like have never rock climbed in my life. I'll go ahead and tell you, um, rock climbing is not a an Atlanta thing. Right. Yeah, this is a whole. I got you know. Look, we're in the West, and we have we embrace it. You know, we love our wilderness. But um, anyway, he's gone mainstream, and rock climbing is going to be in the Olympics next year, and um, a different thing than what he did. He climbed uh, the El Capitan granite walls without any aid, which means he didn't do. He had no ropes. He just had his shoes and his hands, and he went up and did the whole damn thing. Um, and uh, and I recommend the movie if you haven't seen it, or to anybody who listens to your podcast. If you guys haven't seen this movie, it's going to blow you away. I mean, it was it deserved to win the Oscar. It was amazing, and I really like movies to see, watch a lot. So. I'm telling you, this is a great movie. So yeah, so I'm I'm just writing about all kinds of issues um, that uh, have some sports lens, and uh, that's where I'm at. I and I have a, a soccer story. If I could ever just get some time, I want to finish that deals with the quakes. I kind of mentioned it, but I don't want to talk too much about it. One interesting Atlanta angle is somebody, in, um, an expert in Atlanta, is is quoted in my story. So there's that. Okay, there you go. And uh, I'll have to check it out. So, Elliot, thank you so much for making the time tonight. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm well. good luck with everything. And maybe we'll talk again soon. Anytime you need me, Chase, give me a call. You've made this so easy. You've got a gift. Thank you for you. Thanks, man. That's uh, that might be the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Um, we're wrapping up there, Elliot. Thank you so much. Um, talk to you soon, man. Okay, take care. Bye. All right, we're back on the Chase Thomas podcast, and I am now joined by someone who is been extremely loyal and not um, releasing any just blistering Lakers takes in the last 48 hours. So I really appreciate that. It's Andrew Angvari. Andrew, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm okay. I've been better. I've been worse. 
but uh, I'm clearing yeah. the deck for you. Like even my notes, I, I have all these <laughs> notes for different uh, podcast guests and all my just my backup notes, and I just take notes on everything that I read and that I watch and all this kind of stuff. So it's just I'm a crazy person with notes and reading and all that stuff. But with this, I just. I, there are so many different turns and me trying to figure out um, where to start with any of this or trying to figure it parse through. Like, how do you even try and fi- formulate some sort of um, storyboard with everything that's happened in the last couple of days? Like, I don't even know how to do it. So yeah. I'm just going to uh, clear the deck for you. I'm going to get out of the way. Um, as a Laker fan, how are you dealing with all of this? You can go from Frank Vogel having to answer one of the most uncomfortable Dave McMiniman questions I've ever seen at a press conference to, uh, Magic Johnson, just, uh, talk about Zubach like he is, uh, just a piece of trash, like uh, wherever you want to do, uh, I'm fine with it. Uh, yeah, that's funny. Cause I was thinking about jotting down notes so that I didn't leave anything out. But I feel like there's a way to kind of sum everything up. And I think that, you know, I had to kind of let everything marinate. And I read a lot of things twice and I looked at some of these quotes. And I think that, you know, I, and then I was looking at the, what it was that seemed to get the most, I guess, aggregation of, of what uh, Magic was saying. And I think that Magic did a lot to prove uh, why the other guys in the front office were doing things behind his back. And I think that magic also, you know, using the term backstabbing when somebody is voicing their criticism of you. Yeah. It's disloyal for somebody to maybe air dirty laundry to somebody else. But at the same time, if somebody were to say to someone else who wants to, let's say make a deal or whatever, I tried to get a hold of magic, but he doesn't return my phone calls. And Rob Linka says, well, you know, he's never in the office. And then that gets back to magic. He considers that backstabbing, you know, backstabbing might be if somebody were either exaggerating or perhaps uh, making things up as far as what Magic's involvement was. But I think what Rob Link was trying to do, and, and I agree with Magic's main, uh, one of Magic's main criticisms, which was the, the too many cooks in the kitchen. But I think Magic thought that he deserved total autonomy to make decisions, and I can only imagine where this franchise would be if he was given that autonomy unchecked. And I think that there were moves that were made last offseason – that made a lot of people question his his uh, uh, judgment going forward. And so, you know, when he talks about, you know, Tim Harris vetoing his wanting of to, to fire Luke Walton, yeah, I can understand why somebody wouldn't want a guy on the business side who maybe had a, a close friendship with Luke Walton to have a say in whether or not he should get fired. But was Tim Harris's motivation the fact that he's friends with Luke Walton, or was Tim Harris's motivation – of, of stability for the franchise and trying to make an argument that let's give Luke another chance. We have him under contract. Maybe he deserves that. And I think magic's interpretation, you know, and, and from what we heard, cause we only heard one side of the story was that I wanted to fire Luke and some guy in the front office who handles business told me that I couldn't. Now, <laughs> let me give you some background on Tim Harris. And this is not to pretend that Tim Harris is, uh, you know, Chaz, the bartender, cause he's not. When I was a kid, I was on a, a club soccer team. And every summer we went to UCLA soccer camp. And the goalies went off with the UCLA goalies. And Tim Harris was a UCLA goalie. And Tim Harris was on the Los Angeles Lasers major indoor soccer league team, which was also owned by the Bus family. And they liked him. And the league folded after, I don't know, three or four seasons. And they kept him in the fold. They gave him a job. And he's kind of worked his way up on the business side for over 20 years. So he's got the credentials, at least, you know, and the gravitas to, to at least have an opinion on things. 
whether or not he should have a say in basketball-related matters, that's another question. But I would love to hear, you know, what what Tim Harris's uh, justification would be for for keeping Luke around and, and what his plan was and what Magic was so against. But I think for somebody to have not had any front office experience like Magic had, to be given that type of control right away, and coupled with Magic having been the main reason that the Lakers signed LeBron James bought him a lot of leeway with respect to other roster decisions. And it's safe to say that if this team had just added LeBron to the team they had a year ago, they probably would have made the playoffs. I mean, if LeBron had missed 10 games instead of 17 games, or if, you know, Brandon Ingram and Lonzo and LeBron had played more than 23 games together, which is all they played this season. So I I think that, you know, the, um, I think so. I think that Magic earned a lot of leeway with respect to other decisions once he was the guy who was responsible for bringing in LeBron. But I think once people saw what he did after that, it made them question whether or not he had that type of or should have had that type of authority. And I think that it's safe to say that if they had just added LeBron to last season's roster and LeBron had only missed, let's say, 10 games instead of 17 games, or if uh, Brandon Ingram, LeBron, and Lonzo would have played more than 23 games together, which is all they played together this season, that this team probably would have made the playoffs. But when you see what Brooke Lopez did, and you see what Julius Randle did, and you see even what guys like Thomas Bryant were doing in, in Washington, I think people said maybe we should take this type of power away from him, and then it made him question why his decisions were so poor, and then they questioned his work ethic with respect to the Lakers and his interest in that. And when you have guys like Rob Palenka in the office every single day, and you don't give those guys the authority to make those decisions, and the guy who does have that authority is nowhere to be found or is only in the office once or twice a week, uh, it's hard for that train to keep moving. And I think that what Magic tried to do this week, and you know, the timing was terrible, and I think that it wasn't intentional. I think you know, Magic tweeted something about some you know, a keynote speech he gave Tuesday morning. So he knew he was going to New York, uh, I took it as an opportunity to go on TV on Monday morning. It wasn't to upstage uh, the Vogel press conference, but he knew what he was no, doing. It was booked two weeks in advance. I don't know if you listened to Bomani today, but Bomani, uh, he confirmed that Magic Johnson made that uh, booking two weeks ago. Yeah, which which makes sense. And look, you know, and if they didn't want him to do it on Monday, then somebody should call him and say, Irving, could you do us a favor? We're introducing our new coach. And I think that would have been more appropriate than Magic calling the Lakers and going, hey, you know what, I'm going on first take. Could you do me a favor and postpone the Vogel press conference so I can talk right. to Max Kellerman? You know, and if so Amy I, is his sister, like he would listen and be like, okay, I understand. I'll wait a day, whatever. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, yeah, it, it, yeah. And that was what Bill Plash, I think, wrote was that, make no mistake, Magic was in New York on Tuesday. I mean, he gave a speech Tuesday morning, but maybe he could have done a taped interview, whatever it was, or maybe just canceled it. You know, there, there was like, what, what was the, the rush to, to go public with the story as far as the timing? You know, it's funny because I'm the guy who wrote a story when Magic, uh, I guess it was in the aftermath or maybe right before the Lakers fired Mike D'Antoni or when they decided to part ways. And I wrote, an, it, you can find it online, an open letter to Magic Johnson. You know, it was basically your criticism, <clears throat> as much as you love this organization, is not helping before what at that point was the biggest off season in the franchise's history, because I think it was that first summer that they were going to have cap space. So when everybody was trying to create this impression that the franchise was stable, you coming out with this criticism. So publicly, you know, whether it was, you know, uh, questioning Mike D'Antoni decisions, questioning Jim Buss has got to go, 
you know, you're not helping. Now, him getting the job eventually and actually signing LeBron James, you know, proved that he was right. That doesn't mean that he should have gone public with those criticisms. And, you know, it's funny because uh, I know Mark Stein <clears throat> put that his New York Times newsletter, and it just, it just came out before you called. And I was reading what he wrote about, uh, you know, about what ma- has magic, you know, magic's pretty much been invincible when it comes to Laker fans, but is that nearing its end? You know, if, if there was a game tonight and magic was shown on the Jumbotron, I'm wondering in my head, you know, how, what percentage of that would be cheers and what percentage would be booze. And there are people who might think what magic is doing is great because he's gone. So let him say all these things, let the franchise be publicly humiliated and then they can move forward. But I think the franchise looks at it from if we make the right decisions going forward and Magic's no longer here, then we can just say that it was Magic who was holding us back. And, you know, I, I do think that there's there's a lot of piling on right now. I, I think it's easy to see some of these stories and think that it's just people uh, having a lot of fun and kind of taking liberty, not with facts, but stretching things out and some innuendo and and, and, and some hyperbole where it's it's... Yeah, I get that the front office hierarchy looks terrible right now. But I think that there's also very little perspective as far as what this team actually has in terms of assets, uh, who might fill out this coaching staff. Um, Yeah, I mean, everybody pretty much doubts that they were going to sign a top three or four free agent. But at the same time, if they manage to sign one of the top six or eight free agents, coupled with LeBron James, coupled with a healthy roster, can this team make the playoffs? It's not out of the realm of possibility. I mean, they probably would have made the playoffs this year if LeBron doesn't miss 30-plus games or whatever it was. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I think all LeBron missed 17 in the middle of the season, and then I know he missed the last six, and then they probably had him sit out for a couple in the middle. But, yeah, so you know... 20 to 30, something like that. It was just... He missed too many, where it was yeah. just like... They were going to be a, the they were like a top five seed if he doesn't when he went down and everything. Well, here's, like they were, here's what's, yeah, it was they, they were the four seed in the West and had beat Golden State on Christmas Day in Oakland the day that he got hurt, and and they looked as good as they looked the entire season. And here's what's so crazy is that if you looked at the schedule before the season started and you said, "Show me the stretch of 17 games that if you were going to have to lose LeBron, which stretch of 17 games it would be?" It probably would be right around the 17 that he missed because it was filled with home games and road games against weak opponents, and they still found ways to lose those games. And a lot of that was just the absence of LeBron. So it, it just sucks that they didn't have enough to to kind of uh, win those winnable games while he was out, and that is what curtailed their season. I mean, you know, when we were approaching the trade deadline, and everybody kept wondering, you know, when it was the Lakers and the Clippers neck and neck, and then like, by the time the trade deadline came around, you know, I'm one of those guys that didn't have a problem with them trading the Zubats because I was under the impression that they had another move in mind whether it was signing a released, you know, a waiver claim or, you know, one of those uh, buyout guys, and but it never happened, which is why, you know, obviously I, I reversed course on, on my thoughts on that. My whole thinking was that they weren't going to bring Zubats back, even, you know, even though he has a very tiny uh, cap hold for next season, I just felt like if they weren't going to bring him back, yeah, well, if you're going to well, clear up this roster. Well, that in that interview. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and the thing is, they I, look, dumping Michael Beasley's contract wasn't a necessity for a team like the Lakers. If, but if you're using that uh, cap space to sign somebody else, or then why didn't you, if you, if you, there was somebody else signed, then just release Michael Beasley. So I, I just don't think he knew everything. And I think that, you know, and then Chidi kind of forcing the two of them together when, it, even if Rob knew the ins and outs of, of the collective bargain agreement and how to make trades, 
that doesn't make it any, you know, it only makes it slightly easier for him to then become a GM. And the fact is, is that, you know, and, and I'm using the word collusion, not, not as a, as a, a charge that like a literal charge against the other teams in the league, but there is zero incentive for any team in the league to want to help improve the Lakers. So if you're counting on trades as a means to do it, it's not going to happen. They, they are loving every minute of this. And that just comes with the territory. You know, it, it is what it is, you know, you know, and I, I, and I don't think that New Orleans decision not to trade Anthony Davis Lakers last season was based on the fact that they weren't going to trade with the Lakers. I mean, yeah, obviously they didn't like the way that shit went down. But I, I think what it was more than anything was the ability to uh, wait till the offseason because they, did, they didn't have to make a trade right away, and especially if Boston couldn't make a trade. But the way that that unfolded, um, clearly, you know, you're, you can't hold a gun to somebody that's wearing a bulletproof vest and expect them to flinch. You know, they, they, they didn't care. And, then, uh, and it, I mean, I never thought for a second that they were going to make a trade. But, you know, it's, it's, it's just tough because, and this is the other thing is that, you know, I was one of those people that when the Ty Lue thing happened and he decided not to take the job and those stories came out that he didn't want to work with Jason Kidd, you know, the first thing that popped in my head was that I had no doubt Jason Kidd was going to be the next head coach. What I didn't think was that they were afraid to make him the head coach and were going to force him upon whoever the head coach was as an assistant. The only thing that popped in my head was, was quid pro quo, that Jason Kidd was the first major client of Jeff Schwartz, who's his agent, they are very close. And Jason Kidd is probably going to have a lot of trouble finding another head coaching job. And I think that, and the fact that Jeff Schwartz represents Chris Middleton and he represents Campbell Walker, that, I mean, and he represents Brandon Ingram, but that's not nearly as important in, in, as far as the timing of this free agent class is concerned, that if one of those guys signs with the Lakers, then there has to have been something behind that signing of Jason Kidd for them to mandate that Jason Kidd be on the head coaching staff. And, you know, Interesting. Or, or, see, yeah. this hasn't been brought up as much, the Jeff Schwartz thing. Yeah. Um, huh. We always talk about it, like how important agents are and like we have an agent in the, in the building. And then like the, the guy who people just assumed and was getting a lot of buzz of like him going to, to run this front office this summer was um, Bob Myers. Like, it just seems like so many different agent um, storylines going on here. I didn't even really consider the Jeff Schwartz thing with kid and Middleton and Kimba because I, I mean, I, Kimba would just be perfect. I want Kimba to go to LA. Like that's yeah. the one I want them to get. Like he would be perfect next to LeBron. He's the perfect LeBron guard. I think if, if they were smart, they would just acknowledge the fact that, you know, Kawhi is not coming. Uh, KD's not coming. And, and that if they focus their attention on just Kyrie and Kemba, they might come up on one of them. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then perhaps, you know, find a solid role player on the market that JJ Reddick, something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Somebody that's on a team that could have cap space if they didn't re-sign that person and that per- that person's not willing to wait for everybody to spend their money. Whether it's Ed Davis, who was a Rob Palenka client, you know, as one one of their role players, or Alfred Camino. Love Ed Davis. I mean, yeah. Ed Davis stand, by the way. But continue. Yeah. No, so you know what, I, what I'm saying? So, you know, you've got these guys who are, who are role players, you know, and so, you know, I think Jeff Schwartz also represents Pat Connaughton. You know, he, so you, you've got guys like that who, who were available and they, you know, they, they didn't field a, a roster wisely. Now, they could also go to Brooke Lopez and Julius Randall and go, hey, guys, you know, well, Zion's going to New Orleans and, and Julius, you know, we, we love you here and we're cleaning this late and we'd love to have you back. Or, you know, Brooke Lopez is a West Coast guy who always wanted to play for Lakers. And, you know, and, and you know, Brooke Lopez also at this point in his career might say, hey, look, I'll take the, you know, the, the mid-level 
from Milwaukee and play for eight and a half million, nine million dollars next year and, and give it one more chance if they fall short and we're trying to win a championship. But, you know, there's if you offer that guy twenty million dollars, then he's got a huge decision to make. You know, I was talking to some people today, you know, about Pat Beverly. And, you know, last week there was a story that the Mavericks are going to go after Pat Beverly. Then there was a story about the Bulls. And, and you know, as much as I would love, you know, the Lakers to get Pat Beverly because he's that kind of guy. Pat Beverly, Daryl Morey gave Pat Beverly a five-year, $24 million contract. In July, Pat Beverly turns 31 years old. He is going to go to the highest bidder. Now, his cap hold is $9.5 million, which isn't much, but the Clippers want to spend. So, you know, the Clippers are hoping that they can spend up – you know, to everything but that nine and a half million, and then they can give Pat Beverly the contract that they feel he deserves. But you know, there, I remember Pat Beverly on on one of Roger's pod. I don't remember if it was the the newer one or the older one, where he said that there's times during the season where he gets on an airplane and for a day, on a day off, he will go to Chicago just to kind of recharge. Now the Bulls want to sign Pat Beverly, so you know, Pat Beverly just as an example of that guy who's, you know, it, while the Clippers are going after Kawhi and KD and and whoever else. If Chicago goes to, uh, you know, to Pat Beverly and they say, look, you know, we want to give you 15 million a year for, for, you know, for four years. And he doesn't think that the Clippers or he can't wait on them. And then the, the Bulls say, you know, we're, we're, we got 48 hours to make a decision. You know, he, he might make that deal. That's the way these things tend to go down. So that the Lakers, you know, I, I hope they know who they're targeting as far as those guys are concerned. But, you know, and I, and I, you know, look, winning the fourth pick in, in the draft was, was a great, uh, thing in, in amidst the sea of just negative stories one after another. And then for magic to kind of, you know, uh, take a flamethrower to the franchise on his way out. I you think seem very he, anti magic. I, this is an interesting perspective. I, well, I think you, you're mad about the magic stuff. And now keep this in mind. I have one jersey that hangs on my wall and it is a magic Jersey that my wife got mm. me for my 30th birthday. Magic okay. Johnson was my hero. Like nothing, like all of my college entrance ex- uh, essays, application essays were about that day in November of 91 when Magic came out and announced he was HIV positive, like how the, uh, learning that, you know, my heroes weren't, uh, weren't invincible. So there is nobody that loves Magic. I patterned my life after Magic. Soccer player, I was a guy who was, wanted to give the assist more than score the goal. I wanted to make other people shine. That's how I've been my whole life. So it's hard for me to see what magic is doing now because you know i don't know if he's doing it to save his reputation as a front office executive or if he just feels so uh, uh burned by you know the the front office not undermining him but just kind of having to try to do business in spite of him because it just seemed you know bill simmons tweeted this morning that maybe it was yesterday it's just been such a long 48 hours that no, the that linda Rambis stuff feels like job, six and a half months ago like, we're not even talking about that yeah, anymore. Well, like, that's just gone. Yeah, well, I mean, here's the thing about, like, I, do I want Linda having any say in the basketball side of things? Absolutely that's not. That's what I was but, waiting for, by the way, in that yeah. magic thing. I was, like, waiting for the Linda Rambis stuff, but he didn't, like, we, they didn't go there. Well, here's the thing. You'll realize about all of those Showtime guys, they will never, ever criticize any any of the of their of their Showtime teammates. You know, James Worthy is, you know, a host the halftime and pregame and postgame on the Lakers Network. Mm-hmm. And when Byron Scott was coaching the team, he very rarely ever criticize byron scott's coaching you know ac green will do occasional tv appearances never says anything negative about byron scott when he was coaching so for him to say something about not only a, a former teammate but a former teammate's wife would that's the sort of where magic won't you know uh, won't, won't cross the line you know i don't think magic would have said those things about uh jim buss if, if jerry buss was still alive 
But, you know, this is also the guy that's saying, you know, tweeted hallelujah when the Lakers fired Mike D'Antoni, you know, the guy who won coach of the year last year and, and came pretty damn close to, you know, making it to the finals. Specific guys. Like he just has guys in mind that he likes and guys that he doesn't. And it's just like, that's my thing. It's like, he, you're paying me this amount of money. I don't want pushback. I just feel like all this could have been solved if Genie just sold the team to Magic. Because we know he's good with the Dodgers. Like, I think he'd be a good owner. He's just a bad general manager. He's a bad well, person you know, the, basketball ops. But this, the he thing should, with the yeah, Dodgers... I, but the thing with the Dodgers is, you know, the Dodgers are owned by a hedge fund and they needed yeah. a face. They needed a face. So, you know, Magic, it does own part of the team, but when you broke down the percentage, it's like 3% because they bid like $2.1 billion for a team. And, you know, and Magic sold his 5% of the Lakers. He probably got, you know, somewhere between three and $500 million of it. But he, you know, I'm sure he didn't use, you know, I don't know, that probably wasn't even that much because this was prior to the Clippers uh, getting sold to Steve Ballmer. So at that point, there was probably no franchise that was worth a billion dollars. So I don't think, you know, Magic even got that much. He probably got, you know, $100 million, or, you know, maybe even less than that. You know, let's say it was $50 million, you know, which is crazy considering, you know, that 2009 Forbes estimated Lakers value at 370 something like that, $370 million. in 2019. I think there's $3.7 billion, something like that. So, the, but, but, so, you know, I, I'm hesitant to give Magic any credit for the Dodger success. And the fact is, he owned part of Lakers, and he was dumb enough to sell when he did. So that makes me wonder how he would be as an owner, or how much he would meddle, or why he never said, hey, maybe we should go out and get this guy. The problem is, is you can't be away from the game as long as Magic was and expect to have relationships you know, with anybody that wasn't a player, like you know, Danny Ainge. You know, how, how many of these GMs does Magic have a relationship with? Like, you know, I'm sure Daryl Morey's eyes lit up at the moment the Lakers... Uh, you know, hired Magic, and, and, you know, the first move Magic made right after he was hired was the Lou Williams trade. And it wasn't a terrible trade. They ended up getting a first-round pick for a guy that probably wasn't going to be here long-term anyways. But if you ask around the league, you know, what would you give up for Lou Williams right now? You'd probably get a lot more than a first-round pick. You know, the Clippers got uh, got rid of Chris Paul, you know, for, and for Lou Williams. As, you know, one of you know the four players that, that, that were involved in that trade. So, you know, I, it just seems like you know, that you have all these coaching trees and the fact that there's nobody in the organization to, who, who, who's worked in any capacity for, you know, from any of those other coaching trees. You know, it, it's unfortunate, but the, the way the NBA works, I mean, there was a few years ago at the deadline when San Antonio and Philadelphia made a trade. This was back when, uh, you know, when, uh, what's his name? The, I can't think of his name. Uh, Sam Hankey was the GM in Philadelphia. And Hankey had spent time in the San Antonio organization and they made a trade uh, involving a player, I think, for a second-round pick. And there was another franchise that stepped up and said, we offered a better pick for the same player. But we don't have a relationship with uh, R.C. Buford in San Antonio. Mm. So, you know, and, and, and it just makes you question, like, you know, the way this league works is that so much of it's based on relationships. And there's some franchises that make trades with each other constantly. There are still, I think, three franchises that have never made a trade with the Lakers. I think it's all pro sports, though. I think every sport falls into this trap. I don't think that's just strictly <clears throat> a basketball thing. No, no, I, I agree. But the thing is, is that it just would seem, you know, you know, everybody keeps using the term mom and pop operation to describe the Lakers, that you've got this team that's, that's bringing in all this money. And, I, and it can't be that they're broke. They're clearly not broke. It's not like, you know, right. that, that, that Jeannie's not spending the money because she, you know, owns a yacht. You know, for, you know Don't by all. a bad TV deal? Is something going on with that? Do I mind no, remembering that? Look, I mean, the only, the, as far as we know, it's, it's the best TV deal in all the professional sports. The question is, has Spectrum Sports gone to the Lakers, you know, formerly Time Warner, and said, these numbers are not what we thought they would be. This team right. is not as good as, as, as the one that we thought we were buying into. Um, either, you know, 
quickly improve this franchise or we got to go back to the drawing board and renegotiate some of these deals because we're bleeding money here. And, you know, which probably isn't happening, but they probably did think it would be a lot more lucrative. And as bad as Lakers are, they're still, you know, uh, killing the Clippers in TV ratings. And there's still people in the city that like uh, Dishnet customers who still can't get Laker, the Laker channel. Hmm. So, so it, it can't be the TV deal. I mean, like at the same time, the Lakers, you know, this is their only business. You know, I mean, they might have investments in other things, but this isn't like, you know, Mark Cuban, who's got, you know, money in, in 100 other businesses or, <clears throat> pardon me, or, you know, uh, 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 you know, who, who's got, you know, money in technology. You know, this is this is where they make their money. So I can see why they would want to be a little bit more responsible on how they spend it. But when you're talking about coaching staff, I mean, how much money are we talking about? You know, I, I, and the thing with, you know, Ty Lue, that's why people were so upset. It's like, even if you wanted to fire the guy three years into a five-year deal, you know, like, so what? You got to pay him $12 million. You don't have to give him that money up front. You know, if, they, if, if he's the best man for the job, then hire the best. And, and I don't necessarily believe you, you can say uh, without a shadow of a doubt that he's a better coach than Frank Vogel. You know, I, I just, you know, I, I hate the position that Bet Vogel is, is coming into because it makes him look naive. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, he is the only guy that's sort of like, uh, hey, can we talk basketball here? And, and I appreciate that. You know, I, I think he's... He also you know, doesn't he, really have any leverage. Like, he wasn't getting another NBA head coaching job. Everything was, by all accounts, he was getting a defensive coordinator offer. We saw that with the Rockets yeah. before and all that kind well, of and, stuff. And also and, with Lakers, they, you know, that him right. and Ty Lue, you know, that, that he was going to come in. Why did they do that? Why did they just hire Ty Lue and let him get Frank Vogel or Tom Thibodeau or whoever is his, his defensive coordinator? I, I don't well, know why. Like, what was the three- and five-year deal thing? The Magic didn't even opine on that at all. Like, what well, is this? Well, he, you know, he said that the Lou was the guy that he wanted, you know, and and I think that again, you know, you you want to, you don't want to create this. Because he got LeBron. LeBron I think he knows that like the key should go to LeBron. Like you need to appease him. But and and and, and so what? And if there are headlines that LeBron has power, so what? What, what is right. that? Right. Who cares? That's what Magic yeah. had. You won titles. Like he, yeah. he forced his hand. Like he got Pat Riley fired. The guy before him, Westfall, whatever it was. Like he, there's nothing wrong with giving into a top three basketball player and being like, hey, what do you want to do here? Like it yeah. turns out that's really good in, in basketball. It's a good thing to hand over the keys to a, a superstar, once in a generation talent. It's okay to do that. Or giving him input isn't the same as giving him the decision. You know, asking yeah. him, asking him his opinion. Look, you know, it would be smart. To, look, I'm sure that when Lakers wanted to bring in Mike D'Antoni to replace Mike Brown, that they went to Kobe and Steve Nash and said, "What do you guys think about this hire?" And I'm sure Kobe probably said, "Hey, if we can get Phil. Let's get Phil." And Nash probably said, "Hey, it's not my decision to make because that's who Nash was." But this, these things happen. There, there's no. There, I, there are very few coaching decisions that are made with at least somebody calling their star player and saying, Hey, you know, what do you know about this guy? What would you think if we hired him? We're going to interview him. You know, what have you heard about him? That's, that's due diligence. That's not giving somebody uh, an exorbitant amount of power that, that they're undeserving of. Now on the flip side, there is LeBron who might say, Hey, look, you know, I'm getting killed. People think I'm this, you know, Kingmaker or, uh, you know, that, that I'm the one that's calling the, the, the shots here. And, you know, I, I don't, appreciate that nobody's kind of coming out and saying, Hey, these are all our decisions and all that blame is being put on me for things that I didn't do. That's different than, than the criticism that people are trying to say that, that Lakers didn't want to make it look like LeBron was having all this power. And, and besides, like if, if Tyler was a good coach after three years and, and you were willing to give him those three years for the remainder of LeBron's contract, then you probably would have extended him anyways. And you know what? He would have wanted more money if he was successful. So you could have got him for cheap. 
you know, you know, if he only had a three-year contract, if he was, if he was performing well under it, you know, it just, it, it, it's frustrating to see because nothing they've done has been predictable. It's like, you know, I keep pining for them to hire Chad Forcier, who was a Vogel assistant in Orlando, who last year went to Memphis. And then when they fired Bernie Bickerstaff, he became unemployed. Well, so he's currently unemployed. This is the guy that, you know, that the Spurs credit with developing Kawhi Leonard in San Antonio as, as their head of player development. Um, he's a really well-respected assistant coach who's still out there. And, you know, Bickerstaff just got hired to coach uh, the Cavs. He's the associate head coach with John Beeline's staff. And so the guy that, you know, worked with Forcier last year is probably going to put in a phone call and say, hey, you know what, my coach is a, a college guy who doesn't know a lot of assistant coaches in the NBA. I would love to bring you aboard. And if that happens and Lakers miss the boat on, on hiring him, a guy that could help in the recruitment of Kawhi Leonard. You know, I mean, you know, the, the only shot that the Lakers have at Kawhi Leonard is not they from... They don't have a shot, by the way. Just, well, here's the thing. You know, I mean, here's the thing. Kawhi is a, is a, is a weirdo. And I think mm-hmm. that, I think that, that there's, and I say that in the most endearing way, but but there's, you know, there's this thought that because his uncle is his agent, that he's got some, you know, uncle who who went to night school, you know, to get a agent credential and, and doesn't know what he's doing. His agent was an NFL agent. I mean, his, his uncle was an NFL agent, so he he's not some novice. You know, it's easy to go, you know, and even Zach Lowe said he won't refer to him as Uncle Dennis anymore because that's that's it's really insulting to a guy that actually you know has credentials to be an agent. But if their rationale for moving from the Eastern Conference back to the Western Conference is from a marketing standpoint uh, and not a basketball standpoint, or if they care a lot about that, whether it's, you know, selling New Balance basketball shoes or, or, or whatever else, uh, you know, they can do better going to becoming the franchise savior uh, of a Laker franchise where, you know, 499 out of 500 people you, you know, walk past on the street aren't going to yell at you for going to the wrong LA team and won't boo you when you throw out the first pitch at Dodger stadium. So I, I do think that there's, do you think that's going to happen when KD signs with the Clippers this summer? I don't think Katie's going to sign. Honestly, I'm one of the few people. I, that's that where think- I think he, I've said for the last year on this podcast, check the tapes, folks. Oh, I I've said at the beginning, KD was going to the Clippers and the Raptors were winning the NBA finals this year with Kawhi having the best season of anybody. That's what I've said for the last year. So, okay. I'm so, sticking so, to it. And, and where do you think Kawhi is going? I think he's staying in Toronto because I think they're winning the okay. I think they're winning the title. You think they're going to be Golden State this year? Yes, I do. You still and wow, that's that's on par with Detroit being Lakers in 04. And don't forget, all I think if you you can still find the page of the 2008 Finals. If you go to ESPN's 2008 Finals page, you just type in 2008 NBA Finals, ESPN, Lakers, Celtics. You'll see. I think they have like 16 guys make predictions, and I think all but Tim Legler picked the Lakers. Right. Hmm. Just because, you know, the, remember, the Celtics won seven games with Atlanta in the first round. They went seven games with Cleveland mm-hmm. in the second round. They went six games with Detroit in, in the conference finals. And then, well, meanwhile, the Lakers, you know, had beat, you know, San Antonio and, and, and it kind of breezed through uh, the Western Conference. So people were just, you know, recency bias were just, you know, hopping on the Laker bandwagon. And if you look at 2004, Lakers Pistons, Lakers had home court. Oh, no, they did. Wait. Uh, no, they, yeah, they did. They had home court in that series. They lost game one, one game two in overtime, and then lost all three in Detroit. I think, that, you know, so if, if you were right, I mean, you, you will look like a genius. You can hold that as a credential for, for eternity. And it, look, That's the plan. I, think, I think there will be people that are willing to pick Milwaukee. And I think that this, that this layoff you know, isn't always a good thing. I always remind people that there were 10 days off between uh, game four of the Western Conference Finals in 2001 and game one of the finals when the uh, Iverson-Lou game was the only playoff game the Lakers lost that entire playoff run, right? So there were only 
The first round was best of five back then. So that team went 15-1 and one in those playoffs, but they were 10 days off between when they finished their sweep uh, in, the pre- in the Western Conference Finals and Game 1. And Phil Jackson tried to simulate um, you know, NBA, real NBA games as best he could. I think he had real NBA officials uh, calling their scrimmages. They were practicing at Staples Center because he was afraid that that time off was going to neg- negatively affect the team. Now, the game did go to overtime. They probably should have lost in regulation, and they lost that game anyways and then ended up winning the next four. But this Milwaukee team, or even Toronto, if I mean, Milwaukee would have home court. Toronto wouldn't have home court against Golden State, I don't think. But but I, I'm pretty sure. But I know for sure Milwaukee had the best record in the league. You know, if you can win those first two games, you know, and that puts a lot of pressure on Golden State that they've, you know, haven't been under since that Houston series last year. Um, so yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, and then what about what other major, what other K free agent are we, are we forgetting about? I want to hear your your prediction. We see, you told me Kawhi, you told me KD. Where do you think uh, Kyrie's? Like Kyrie? I think Jimmy should stay. I really do think Jimmy should stay. They shouldn't pay Tobias. They should let him go wherever. Um, I'm going to bet on Jimmy Butler staying. I think playing with Joel Embiid was something that he enjoyed, and I think they still see something in that core and Simmons and getting to grow a little bit more. Um, Kyrie, I, he's probably the hardest. I don't think he's going to the Lakers. I think, you know where I'm, I, my gut tells me he's going to follow KD. And I think the Clippers obviously have the money, so I think he ends up in Clipperland too. Yeah, I mean, look, if, the, if that happens, you know, every one of these races the Clippers currently have are going to be gone, so they're going to lose a lot of that identity. You know, I mean, but, they still have their main guys. They have Montrezl and Lou Williams. Those guys are not going anywhere. The, and well, Pat Bev, he might be back, and it certainly helps the way they talked about KD in that closing press conference, where it was like, "What what are we supposed to do?" Like he's a freak of nature, like that laugh. You know, KD, someone who's on social media as much as him, saw that and saw how those role players just talked about him and appreciated him, and he would immediately become the best player in Clipper history and all this other stuff. I I just think all of that stuff entices somebody like Kevin Durant, and um, yeah, if they get Kevin Durant, they're going to get someone else. I don't think I I don't think he's going anywhere, KD. But I, you know, I think the only way. I, I especially if they win a championship, I, I think having you know, the he's opportunity. He's not going to the Knicks. I'm I so over the story. I can see him going to the Knicks if somebody goes with him, but it might be hard for him to find Scott somebody. Scott Perry, with. Steve Mills, and James Dolan are not getting two top ten players in the same off season. Like that's not happening. Why are we doing this? Yeah. Well, and here's what's so the crazy: Knicks don't is that do this. <laughs> if this was, if this was, the, if Brooklyn had had the season they had, and they didn't yeah. have so much depth at point guard, Kyrie would make so much sense for that team. So it's like they still might go after him anyways. I don't see why that team would want Kyrie over, you know, a young D'Angelo Russell. Well, I don't um, think he's a lot better. I don't like I'm not a big D'Lo guy. So I would I would sell high on D'Lo and let him go. And if you can get Kyrie, you you take Kyrie. Yeah, I mean, look, he's a restricted free agent. So you can also see what other teams would be willing to to what other contracts teams would be willing to offer to D'Lo before you decide whether or not you you match. And I think they would still have some cash base even if they were. Um, to, you know, uh, if, if they were to retain Dila, I mean, the problem is, is that we give them so many point guards, um, or so many you guards. Know the Lakers are getting Boogie. I think LeBron's going to make Boogie come to LA. Well, I think Boogie comes, if they can figure out a way to, to, to get, you know, if they fail, obviously on now, if they can make, now getting this pick takes another three, three and a half million or something away in cap space that they would have had, uh, had they gotten the pick they were supposed to get so that makes it a little bit difficult to count on them getting boogie let's say and kemba right 
So then you you know you have to. Is that a win for it. you, by the way? Do Lakers fans take that as a win if they get Boogie and Kemba this summer? Oh, that's all absolutely. Yeah, okay. look, I mean, the, the fact is, look, you, you, you can't count on these young guys yet to to deliver night in and night out. So if you put this team in a position where only one of those guys has to kind of, whether it's Kuz or, or Ingram or Lonzo or Hart, whatever, you know, you, if you could put this team in a position where only one of those guys has to kind of, one, one of them has to make a major leap forward next season, and then you just need one of the other guys every game to do something special. Um, that's there. And now, look, you know, with, with a defensive-minded coach, um, if you can get uh, two guys who can handle the ball, like Lonzo and Kemba, um, I don't think you have to worry so much about, you know, who's coaching the offense. If you've got, you know, brilliant basketball minds uh, and LeBron doing his share and Brandon Ingram can, can also uh, handle the ball. Uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, if, if they were good enough defensively, but, you know, I'm trying to remember who it was that I had on my like realistic list with Boogie. I'm, I'm trying to think. You know, I mean, look, you know, Middleton's a guy that, you know, Milwaukee, here's the thing about Milwaukee. You have to understand Giannis is a year away from extension, uh, eligibility, supermax eligibility, and he, they're not going to want to do anything that's going to piss him off. So if that means bringing back, excuse me, sorry, if that means bringing back Brooke and bringing back Middleton and bringing back Brogdon just for one season with the intention of trading them down the road, just to make Giannis think we're going to do everything it takes to try to win a championship until he signs his name on a dotted line, then I can see them doing that too. And, and just sucking it up and paying whatever it is that, that they need to pay in order to make that happen. Um, yeah. I yeah. I'm, I'm trying. I, I mean, somebody asked me the other day, you know, would you trade for Mike Conley? I, I you know, sure as hell wouldn't I trade that. Or the jazz. Yeah. I think the jazz stuff's going to happen this off season for him. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, if they have to convince him and, and there are other teams, you know, like that's the other thing is like, would I trade the number four pick for Mike Conley? Hell no, because no. It, you know, uh, you know what, what you're seeing right now with the Dallas Cowboys and Amari Cooper's is similar to what I don't want to see what happened with Mike Conley, which is you trade the fourth pick in the draft for a guy making thirty million dollars. He comes, he has a player option, he decides not to exercise it, and now you're going to go to your fans and say, "Well, sorry, we traded the fourth pick in the draft for a one-year rental of Mike Conley." No, he's going to have you by the balls. You have no choice but to give him a contract extension because you gave up that asset for him. And I don't want that headache. Nobody mm. should. What about Kevin Andrew. Love? <laughs> what about Kevin uh, Love? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't hate it. Like, that wouldn't be a terrible thing. I mean, you have to go up Coos. I don't think you can close with Coos and uh, Kevin Love at the 4-5, but yeah. um, I don't know. That would be okay. tough. Well, there's I a lot. I don't this know. is going to be the greatest offseason ever. And if I can step, you know, when, if I take my Laker hat off and I enjoy that part of it, I'll have an enjoyable summer. Uh, if if I keep my Laker hat on, I, I could be setting myself up for major disappointment, but I, I would like to be able to, you know, step outside. There, there is a, you know, I know what I'm, I, there are things, you know, number one for me is, you know, obviously rooting for the Lakers. Number two is there are things that I, I'm rooting against for the, the sake of the league because I just don't think that they'd be great. But I do think that it's going to be phenomenal, phenomenal off season. One, unlike we've done, there's going to be, there's no off season. There's no, there's no reason to even call it an off season. That's not what it is. It's, we can call this the, the real hot stove because it's going to be amazing. And you'll be able to be like, who was that guy I was on that podcast with who said KD was going to the Clippers and the Raptors were winning it all? There's someone, and you're going to be like, oh, right, Chase, um, uh, Nostradamus. Thomas. Yes. That, I look, that's I, 
I think I, my hope is with KD is that he looks at a situation and says, we have a chance to do something that no team has done since the 1960s. And that's win four championships in a row. How would they and do that? The Raptors won the finals this year. Though? That's the thing. I mean, then they're obviously, you know, if, they, if that's the case, then they're obviously saying farewell to him um, or, you know, or what they've done with him being able to win without, I'm just saying goodnight to my daughter. I love <laughs> what, what they'd be saying, what, He's given them an opportunity with how well they played in this Portland series to, to to leave and go. Hey, you know what? You guys don't need me. You proved it. Let, you know, and and which isn't what he might feel in his heart of hearts, but it gives him an out to say it. He gives him a cover, and, and plus the franchise doesn't have to fret that that he ruined. Look, there's a part of me that wants to see every single person on that, every player on that team, resigned to as many years as they possibly can, because that would be that that would kill that franchise for 10 years after those guys are all out of the league. I mean, I saw Bobby Marks estimated it would cost $1.2 billion if they resigned their core guys for, for four years, it would cost the franchise $1.2 billion. Now, did they have the money? Absolutely. But that's $350 million a year in salary. Now, if you give that super max extension to Draymond, and he gets fat and slow, and you've got him forty-five million dollars a year, you know, at age thirty-five, or you know, or whatever it is, you know, that's going to cripple that team. But these are the decisions that you have to make. These are why the rules are the way they are, you know. So there's a part of me that goes, you know, let's get this three hundred fifty million dollars salary. Let, let, let's see what happens to this franchise in the aftermath, or if they've got the balls to go. Hey, you know what? Someone's got to go, and if someone's got to go. Obviously, in their mind, they think it's Draymond. But if you ask who on that team, you know, who's the most important guy on this team as far as the locker room is concerned, they'll tell you it's Draymond. And the fact that he's their defensive core and can still guard, you know, four positions, five positions. So, you know, there, there's a part of me that would love to see them, you know, destruct just or to see if it works. I mean, there's still a chance that, you know, they sign all these guys to responsible contracts and, and they have a chance. You know, none of these guys are old yet, you know. And, and, and as long as Clay and Steph are still doing what they're doing and are still, you know, young and active and shooting historically good, it's still a possibility that they win, you know, two or three more after this, should they win this there year and not, and not Toronto. Well, it'll be fun. I will enjoy it. Um, Andrew, this has been great. I really appreciate <laughs> you taking the time tonight. Um, good luck with all of your Lakers stuff. Yeah. Um, Linda Rambis seems great. Uh, Rob Palenka, very trustworthy. Things are looking up. There's no chance that uh, Mr. Vogel is uh, not the coach of the Lakers within two years. Um, things are looking up. Enjoy Kemba, maybe DeMarcus. Who knows? We shall see. I appreciate you letting me save the money on uh, therapy and letting me vent mm-hmm. on, on your podcast. It's no much appreciated. <laughs> All right, man. I appreciate it. Thanks so no much. No problem. Talk to you soon, All right. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning best-selling taste in the Taste of Atlanta awards, both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, 
where Eats meets West. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.